I live next to like this weird event space. It's funny though. Yeah. What kind of birthday party is it? I don't. Know. It's. I have heard a consistent kind of yeah. beat. Like you are you were dancing along to that one song. It's like action, the sweet do 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 that song. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of I'm hearing like boom boom. Yep boom, yep boom, yeah. boom, yep yep yep. It's got a bit of the reggaeton bounce. I live in Crown Heights, and it's, like, all Jamaicans on this block, so I play, like, the sickest music, truly. So, I, I like... That's cool. So we just got a soundtrack. Literally, yes. Just... That's how, when I stream from here, like, the audio doesn't always, doesn't really make it through this mic. It's pretty directional. Um, mm-hmm. So people do just see me, like, bouncing along to it. Yeah. <laughs> it's really funny. Well, with that, we should say we have a special guest mm-hmm. in the hotbox today. Speaking of which, this is the one and only Hotbox the mm-hmm. Cinema. Sup? How's it going, everyone? It's going out there. Doing great in the in the Hotbox yeah, verse. Doing good. Excited to record this episode. What should we? You know, okay. So I well, okay. First off, we should introduce ourselves. Yeah. Um, I'm Nadine at Trillmore Girls. Speaking of which, fun fact: I'm I'm trans now. Uh, so yeah. What's up? Anyway, uh, I'm Seth, ASAP Sunscreen on Twitter. And our guest today is the illustrious, prolific, mm-hmm. thoughtful, yeah, hilarious thought leader, Gita Jackson. Hi, I'm Gita. Nice. I'm so happy to be here. I have wanted to be on this pod, truly. I really, truly have. And I'm just overjoyed that mm-hmm. it's actually happening. And you were born for it. I like, I really fucking was. Mm. <laughs> like, I don't think there's a better combination of personalities and subject matter than you're about to find on the internet. This is content. Mm. This is why we all make content. Yeah, for synergies like 100 this. thieves? Not More 100. like 100 stoners. <laughs> Damn. But listeners may know Gita wow. as writer at Waypoint, the game site for vice uh but also i guess you've written for like what kotaku yeah i worked at kotaku before that i was a pace magazine uh i've been freelancing and writing about games and internet culture for like half a decade now yeah. which is crazy um i truly did just pitch an article one time and keep going so believe in your dreams this was an accident <laughs> <laughs> 
You gotta stumble into it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Nadine has been a contributor to uh, Waypoint Games by Bias recently, and we're so happy to bring her into the Waypoint family. Mm-hmm. Officially a friend of Waypoint at this point, I Under believe. Under the wing. A friend of yeah. a friend. Yeah, I read about <laughs> Republic Commando recently, and a few mm-hmm. months Hell ago yeah. I wrote about Fuser. That um, Fuser review really was one of the greats mm-hmm. i have to say wow. the best review of that game i think wow it's uh yeah no i mean i heard about that game coming out and i was like nobody has the perspective on this game that i have as a dj mm-hmm. who's also a big fan of dj hero um yep. and i had been in years past trying to place a like anniversary piece on the dj hero franchise which i can never really pull off although i will say you know it's a little hard not to read your uh the 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 comments the forum comments on articles Mm -hmm. sometimes and there was mostly love for the fuser article but people thought that i was a dj hero hater they thought i was being a little mean to dj hero let's set the record straight and i was like no i I love dj hero it's got the great mashups but compared to fuser it is a little simple it is a little back and forth move the crossfader over you've got two songs and that's it you can't really create anything yourself. Yeah, you know, the thing about DJ Hero is it was trying to follow the ease of use, like the UI experience of Guitar Hero, and that's mm-hmm. ultimately what stopped it from being as complex as Fuser. We played Fuser on a stream, me and Maddie Myers from Polygon put Fuser on a stream for um, charities to benefit people in uh, Gaza right now. Uh, we, she, we played Fuser, she's also a musician, and she created some musical nightmares Mm. Um, and, uh, that game is really difficult to learn how to play. Yeah. Like, it's really hard. (laughs) I think that's one thing about DJ Hero and Fuser is that, uh, they're both just made in, like, different times and, like, music game trends. Like, DJ Hero obviously Mm -hmm. was, like, part of the Guitar Hero line or, like, an offshoot of it, but that was when, like, the peripheral was, like, a much bigger deal. Like, peripherals for, like, games are, like, not... A thing anymore i mean like i guess like skylanders and disney infinity were maybe like the last throw of that but yeah so now you it's know, like all controller bound yeah and, and also like the the biggest music game also from a har- uh, harmonics developer that i can remember between like dj hero and fuser was thumper which is this incredibly mm-hmm. complex mm-hmm. really difficult violent aggressive style of music game and there was a yeah. lot of like red like interest in that level of complexity so it seems like, you know, although it's like, you really have to know a little bit about how music works in mm. order to play Fuser, but yeah. that seems to be where the games are right now. Mm-hmm. And it's a, the whole game is a learning curve. You keep, there's new skills like pretty much every level of the game until the end of the game. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. It's good though. Mm-hmm. It's really funny also. I'll mm-hmm. give it that. It yeah. is very funny, but Fuser's also just like fun because, like, I don't know, because it's songs that I like. Yeah, for the most no. part, or it's like I mean, songs that are like bangers that I didn't know about. Yeah, it is like I always feel like I, I know a song more intimately after I play with it on Fuser. Yeah, well, I mean, it does the thing that DJ DJing and and remixing does a lot, where you find this new way of like hearing or interpreting a song and it kind of breaks your brain a little bit to hearing the original song Mm -hmm. um, through that like sort of weird uncanny repetition. Uh, And like, I don't know, you know, it's just, there's so many of these combinations that, 
you would never expect to work like the vocal yeah. from killing in the name over like call me maybe it worked really yeah, well it's amazing <laughs> and i mean everything the whistle, everything works with all star yeah Yes. Yeah, that yeah. all-star whistle. The, whistle from all -star the keys from so Clocks good. is always one of Sol my favorites yeah. 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 anything. Soldier Boy, the steel drums from mm -hmm. Crank That. Um, but yeah. Like, you you have a greater appreciation for just every part of a song. You know, it, it really, it is a music lover's game, but it's definitely, I mean, it, it's, I felt like developed with that, the idea of that kind of joy in mind where like, you know, you get to learn everything about a song. It's like the same kind of um, perspective on learning about a song as like Song Exploder, yeah. that podcast and Netflix show well, where it's like, let's just take this apart and see every single part yeah. of it and hear how then, then bring it back together. And like, you understand now that like, even the party songs that you listen to contain a huge amount of craft mm -hmm. and fuse are also like kind of i guess we can transition to the unboxing after this but yeah one thing about fuser that also kind of like reminds me of like other kind of game trends is that it feels like kind of the destructive comedy of like a lot of physics engine games where yeah. it's just like mashing shit together for fun yeah or it's like yeah, octodad if... or like i don't know goat simulator goat simulator yeah, exactly like that kind of, but it's like that yeah. for songs which is really fun yeah yeah or like you can mm. really create the shit that makes your ears say no, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And it lets you have that freedom, though. It like allows you to go into sonically awful spaces. Well, that's the thing about like, the game is that it never stops you from doing anything. Yeah. And like, yeah, that's the kind of freedom that people like in those physics simulator games, where it's just like, oh, it's very funny when you, like even the sort of. Like like you need uh, asset flippy ones like hand simulator, like there's just something really funny about trying to or or co-op yeah even. or like surgeon like watching simulator some, yeah 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 just like the the slapstick nature of it it just it's very I yeah. don't know sometimes you do get into these Groucho Marx moments in the <laughs> infuser yeah it's definitely musical slapstick <laughs> absolutely. I guess with that, I don't know, we crossfade our way into the unboxing section of the show where we talk about unwrap, dig into the media we have consumed recently. Gita, you're the guest. Guess what I did literally yesterday. I played Dark Souls for the first oh, time. Oh, damn. Well, you played <laughs> yeah. it sooner than I did. Oh, shit. I just, I was getting, so my two friends, it's like a very long story of like how I got into this game. This is a very good story for this mm -hmm. pod. Because it's like, I have such a love-hate relationship with Dark Souls as a concept. Because for a very long time, the only thing you ever heard about this game was like, oh, it's so hard. Yeah. Oh, the game's We're so like hard. We're like hard souls. I feel yeah. like you working as like a games writer, though, in a time when people were just like, this is the Dark Souls of whatever, would just totally oh predispose me in that situation to not want to play it. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, you, you start to feel like, 
there was a, a while where I was only getting pitches. Like, I, I understand why people, like, would use this terminology and also why it's easier to make a platformer than other types of games. But, like, almost, like, once a week at least, more than that usually, I would get an email from someone that's like, do you want to try my indie game, the Dark Souls puzzle platformer? And, like, there's the three words I never want to yeah. hear. I don't like those kinds of games. It's like how I get sent a lot of music that's like, here's this, like, my bloody valentine of bedroom <laughs> pop and i'm like oh have yeah I ever That's fucking me. written about anything related to this yeah come on come yeah. on well dark souls is also yeah. just like one of those games that like kind of grew because of like youtube and a little bit of like yeah. the comedy of watching people like fail at these games a bunch and that's just what made it like popular yeah and i think that culture was not interesting to me and it overshadowed a lot of things that have only kind of emerged in the way that we talk about Dark Souls pretty recently. Yeah. I mean, people always talked about the lore, but it was always like, oh, watch this like three hour video of some guy with an unplaceable European accent to read Wikipedia entries, essentially. And I would never like actually get a feel for like themes. You know, I got a feel for like events ha- occurring, yeah. but it's like, it's hard for me to care about who the Lord Gwyn is when I don't understand what it feels like to do these things or, like, why these events are occurring. And, like, that didn't seem interesting to people. But it turns out these are very thematically rich games and they're incredibly evocative literally immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I it was tipping me over. I watched Jacob Geller. Shout out to Jacob Geller. I watched his YouTube video about... Dark Souls 3. I spoiled myself to shit on all of these mm-hmm. games, so like, do not at me, I don't care about spoilers at all. Um, and he compared it to I'm thinking of ending things, and made a really compelling argument, I thought. And also had a very, very good and interesting take on what makes I'm thinking of ending things effective, especially in the last third, where in the moment, I was like, I sort of get it, but I feel like sort of emotionally blunted by just how many things have happened over the course of this film that it's hard for me to engage right now. But, you know, the final, I think the final scene, you should watch that video for sure if you haven't seen it, but the final scene was like a better analysis of it than I I had seen people engage with that movie, um, which I thought was a really good movie. And then, then it was the other day, me, Maddie, and Nika Deo, uh, who's a contributor for Waypoint, she, we were all just hanging out in voice chat, and Maddie started playing Dark Souls, and she was, like, trying to beat a boss, the, the gaping dragon. Mm-hmm. She was trying to beat that boss, and had been trying to beat that boss for, like, weeks, and I just so happened to be there while watching her when she beat it. And I was sort of, like, I always heard that Dark Souls is, like, Ironically, like a very good game for someone with the cocktail of mental health problems that I have, like ADHD. It's great if you want to hyper focus on one task mm-hmm. and just do it until you do it, you know? And I sort of, I already, I've always heard that, but I, watching her actually do it, I was like, okay, this is something I like at this point in my life now feel emotionally like I want to engage with. And also, like, you know, Janice um, from Motherboard had written this really interesting article about. Dark Souls is an anti-capitalist critique. Mm-hmm. And that was some shit I wanted to do. I wanted to see, finally. Um, and so I, I got on, you know, voice chat with 
Nico and our friend Tyler, who's played a lot of Dark Souls. Um, and last night, and I was like, I don't know, it's like weird because the game has taken on such an outside mythology that I was straight up like afraid to play it. Mm-hmm. I was very anxious. Oh, yeah. Because it's there's so, so much. It really is. But like the immediately the game is extremely funny like it's a joke it feels convivial it feels like the developer is not trying to not trying to punish you but is instead trying to show you like that this this world is full of little tricks it's going to play on you it feels more mischievous than it like a like puckish than cruel and i feel like what i had been anticipating was cruelty but Mm -hmm. it's not that it's it's not punishing. It's trying to show you that like failure doesn't matter at all. Yeah. Failure is like, oh, you lose your souls. Oh, that sucks. Well, you're gonna get a lot of those. Yeah. You really get a lot of souls. I lost I lost all my souls right after I killed the Taurus demon and I felt pretty shitty. But then I was like, I had four thousand souls. I will get four thousand souls yeah, again. Like four probably sure. Absolutely. probably get like multiples of that over the rest of the game. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know, it's it is not even having to go through the same sequence over and over. You see that like micro improvement time and time again, and it's really hypnotic. You know, there's there's so many things to like about it, and the game itself, the atmosphere is so much more interesting. Yeah, like you really you really begin to understand also that the way that people have described this as hard is like completely a misnomer it's not hard it's just more like a sort of puzzle than it is an action game like yeah. it's teaching you how to sort of the point is that it reminds me a lot of like a some games that have taken like examples of things from this like a in dishonored you will end up playing through the same level over and over and over again mm-hmm. Because you just have to figure out the correct route. You have to figure out where all of the guards yeah. are. And you're not going to do it right the first time. You're going to have to try again. But also and, like, Dishonored is like very like very like open to the player. I don't feel like that game is like yeah. incredibly punishing in the same way you described Dark Souls. Yeah, yeah. It's not, you know. I mean, you, you, you can see... I can see now, though, where Dark Souls has sort of trickled down into the design of other games. Yeah. Like, I started cracking up. I was also really high, which helped a lot. Yeah. <laughs> which it's like, oh, this the is metal as fuck. Like, yo, it's like <laughs> it's like an airbrushed like van, like that levels of like dark fantasy. Yeah. It feels so sick. Yeah. It's exactly like this tweet I saw about someone reading Berserk yesterday. It's like a tweet someone said was like, I love reading. I'm also reading Berserk for the first time, so this also applies to Berserk. It's like I love reading Berserk. Because every time I turn the page, I'm like, that's the sickest shit I've ever seen in my life. And each time, I am correct. <laughs> yeah, I honestly had no interest really in Dark Souls at all because of the difficulty and the just kind of like nightmare mode. Yeah. Yeah. And also people... That stuff is, doesn't sound And people fun. treat it no. as like a gamer rite of passage too, which is totally. just Totally. Like, I hate that kind of shit. Like that makes me like not want to be yeah. it. I am a contrarian by nature. So if you tell me that I need yeah. to... Exactly. Like yeah. I've only yeah. seen like <laughs> one know? Tarkovsky movie actually because it's just like, you know, sometimes when people are like, this is the greatest shit ever, you don't really want... You get a little like intimidated, but also you're like, fuck that. Like I want to find the other greatest shit. Um, yeah, I'm always like, bet. Like, you know? yeah. 
I bet I can find something just as cool. It's interesting <laughs> that um, y'all have talked a little bit about just like how streaming has been really important to the rise of Dark Souls because streaming is actually what has made me a little bit more interested now in playing it. Um, my friend Andrew Swafford, co-host of the Cinematary Podcast, has been doing a like weekly Saturday Souls stream. Um, and I think he's doing Bloodborne now or is about to start Bloodborne. Hell yeah. Um, but just watching that, you know, I just tuned in a little bit and just watching it, I was like much more compelled by the aesthetic than just from the sort of discourse around the game. And, you know, as he was sort yeah. of playing, he was like unpacking some of the themes and stuff. And I was like, okay, this is like actually like kind of meaty. Um, but he also mm-hmm. like compared it to... Uh, Borges or some shit like I don't know like it was some level like in a library and and yeah. that's just like very bait for me um, but I kind yeah. of see that I don't know just in the, the sort of like a certain kind of fantasy like mm-hmm. sort of gothic sort of mm-hmm. a, maybe like a little bit of kind of Lovecraft Victorian vibes too um, but also some you know JRPG anime vibes but I don't know it just felt like it's very like something that's like very evocative of a lot of different things but seems still pretty distinct at the same Mm -hmm. time yeah well that is really the beauty of it experiencing it Um, I know that the person that designed Hidetaka Miyazaki I think it's Miyazaki Miyazaki yeah. yeah Um, he, he, like, literally is, did not set out to deliberately design an extremely hard game. He just does set out to design a game that was, like, composed out of things that he likes. Yeah. And you can tell, you can tell when you're playing it. You can tell there's, like, a lot of joy in it, you know? Mm-hmm. He's, like, sick on it. Go ahead. I, uh, this is another thing about Miyazaki, but, um, <laughs> I was, like, kind of not wanting to play the games for, like, similar reasons to what you were saying, Gita, where I was just like, this is just, like, I get it, y'all. You like the game. You don't mm-hmm. have to compare everything to it. But when I read that Miyazaki was working in finance and didn't think about working in games until he played Eco, and he was like, oh, games can evoke things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not always literal. You can use the environment to tell a really emotional story without saying a single yeah. word. Like, that's really what you get. Yeah. But also both of those games, I've played like some Demon Souls and some Bloodborne, but those are the only two of those that I've played. But both of them and then, like, uh, games like Eco and Shadow of the Colossus are, like, really interested in, like, connecting, like, the player's hands to, like, physical things in, like, the world and mm-hmm. the environment and stuff like that. Like, Eco is, like, yeah. you're, like, very physically traversing all yeah. these obstacles and, you and can stuff. feel... It always feels like you can feel her tugging on you oh, yeah. when you have her holding her well, hand. Well, also, it's you know? like they literally tie the player hand to the character hand by making you hold a button to hold this person's hand. And it's yeah. like, yeah. I don't know. I was kind of disappointed <laughs> when uh, The Last Guardian came out because Shadow of the Colossus also had that. But Last Guardian like was not interested in any of that kind of connection. And I was like, this yeah. sucks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I... I love Shadow of the Colossus, and The Last Guardian just didn't have the spark for me. Yeah. I don't know. There's something about Eco that is so special that feels... It feels like if you want to see the things that Eco does in other games, and, like, that is so good, you don't want to... You don't actually go to Team Eco. You go to these other games that are inspired by yeah. it. And, I mean... You can see so many things now. Now that I played... 
Dark Souls, I feel like I'm seeing a, a more intense lineage of the things that I like about these two games in other games. I was like, I was cracking up playing Dark Souls because I realized that the bonfire system is like functionally identical to the way that camping works in Final Fantasy 15. Oh, damn. The game about the like five pretty boys on a road yeah, trip. Yeah, and even like but, saving like, by sitting on a couch in eco. Yeah, yeah, yes, you know, like, okay, so these people are, you know, you can save and quit anywhere in Final Fantasy XV because it's a, uh, you know, it's an open world game, but you can only level up at these camping sites, and they make it a deliberately very emotional process as a way to reinforce in the player the your connection to these other characters yeah. in the same way that they use like bonfires as a way to connect you to NPCs in Dark Souls and in the same way that they use the couch to connect you to the person that you're carrying around yeah. you so in Final Fantasy 15 though you're like your photographer friend shows you the photos of the day yes. you like make your food there's like it really does feel like you're like kind of unpacking like the things that you just did with your friends yeah it really like is such a genuine connection there's in my head that game is like you get to the point where they get to the city and then, I don't know, something happens and then they're older and they're camping and it's that last campfire scene and then Noctis is telling them how much he loves each other. <laughs> and that's the end of the game. And like, none of the rest of the shit that <laughs> is like clearly left over for when this was Final Fantasy versus 13 just doesn't exist. <laughs> mm-hmm. This To me, this yeah. is a game about male friendship. Damn. I, anyway, I may need to play so some yeah. Souls then. Dark Souls is fucking great. It's also, it really just, like, it's not about being hard. It's not about punishing you. It's about, like, just doing something a lot of times until you get it right. Yeah. And you will feel the difference. Like, it's very tactile. I always know what I have done wrong when I have failed. It's very precise design in a way that feels like you and the developer are having a conversation, which is so rare. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like... Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> Nadine, what have you been? So, <laughs> as I talked about on the last episode, pretty much only still been watching wrestling. Um, but yeah. over the past week, I finally got into AEW All Elite Wrestling, um, which launched in 2019, which is the really the first promotion to seriously challenge Vince McMahon and the WWE since that company um, bought out Ted Turner's World Championship Wrestling in 2001. Um, You know, one of the interesting things about, like, being a wrestling fan and being around mostly people who are not wrestling fans and talking to those people about it. Most people, when you're like, oh, yeah, you know why I watch wrestling, they're like, oh, yeah, I know wrestling, like the WWE, right? You know, Hulk Hogan, The Rock. And it's just fascinating because, I mean, I was a WWE bitch for a long time, and I still am, but... Mm -hmm. um, It's a gateway. It is a gateway. It is the most popular but it is a monopoly it is a stranglehold and it delivers a very specific kind of pro wrestling and a very specific interpretation of it and product a lot of wrestlers within the industry even people who work for wwe you know they consider it like essentially the televised like cartoon parody of what pro wrestling is 
Um, and inevitably at a certain point, you like just reach a level of wrestling fandom where it becomes impossible to not watch other promotions just because like you really realize that like these people are actors who it's, I mean, it's much more, I literally watched a, uh, I think it's in the documentary Beyond the Mat where Vince McMahon literally compares it to like the old Hollywood star system where these people are basically contracted to a certain company like actors would have been to a studio in an earlier era and sometimes they trade talent or sometimes people will change affiliations and change companies. Um, and it's obviously a little bit more literal in wrestling because characters, personas, names will sometimes change since those things are like copyrighted by those companies. But it becomes hard not to like follow people. You know, if a wrestler leaves a company, you want to see where they go next or you're like, where did they come from before? How did they get started? A lot of times what they what they're doing in WWE is that like sanitized family friendly version of maybe what they did in indie leagues or in other companies. And also, especially when you're watching older wrestling, when there were other companies like WCW and ECW competing with the WWF, as it was known at that time, uh, before it was sued by the world wildlife fund, um, and had to change its name, <laughs> um, which it was right. originally, by the way, the WWWF, the worldwide wrestling federation, Wow. Um, you Two think words. that, you know, in wow. their branding throughout the 80s and in the 90s, it was literally just WF. You think they could have just gone by WF instead of like WWF. But I guess it doesn't quite have the same rhythm to it as the two W's. I don't know. Anyways, mm-hmm. um, but just like when you're watching older wrestling, you know, like those feuds, the, the going back and forth between companies, especially in the 90s with the Monday Night Wars between WCW and WWF. It's really hard not to start watching the other companies because all that stuff is baked into the intact in the text and informs what's going on. Um, and they're literally talking about these other shows or people are leaving and coming back or, or switching companies. So as I've been going through older stuff, I've I've you know watched WCW and 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 other companies a little bit more now. Um, but people have been bugging me to watch the AEW since it launched in 2019, and I guess basically a little bit context to that. Um, it sort of came out of this indie wrestling event um, that was organized by Cody Rhodes, who is the son of the legendary American Dream, co- the common man, wrestler Dusty Rhodes, the brother of Dustin Rhodes, who was Gold Dust, the infamous androgynous, sexually provocative, uh, gold painted Oscar statue of WWF infamy. Mm-hmm. It's like if the Oscar statue were like a dominatrix a little bit. Yeah, well, literally the character started as like an essentially like a gay film fan who made himself into an Oscar statue because he loved movies so much. And then over time, incorporated the bondage gear, started like lampooning, doing costumes, parodying specific people. Like you had Dusty Dust parodying Dusty Rhodes, his father, and Marilyn Manson Dust, and just like all this stuff. So now Dustin Rhodes is, is, you know, he's still got some face paint, but he's like just a grizzled guy now um, in AEW. Um, But so it came out of this, basically, so... Wrestling has like one really famous journalist slash critic, Dave Meltzer of Wrestling Observer. And a few years ago, he commented that um, the indie wrestling promotion Ring of Honor, which is one of the other kind of few notable American companies, that's an independent company, um, he said that they couldn't sell more than 10,000 tickets to any of their events. So Cody Rhodes, 
who had previously worked for WWE, then was frustrated, left, became an indie wrestler again. He, along with the Young Bucks, who are like one of the biggest tag teams in the world, but they've mostly just been indie in the U.S. They've never been affiliated with WWE. And they're huge in Japan, in New Japan Pro Wrestling. They organized an event called All In, which sold out in 30 minutes and sold 11,000 tickets. And it was like directly kind of a challenge, a response to that. And then they linked up with um, the billionaire... Uh, Shahid Khan, who's the owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars and this stadium that they're in and various <laughs> other football companies. He's like the 160th richest man in the world, like the 70th rich, richest man in America. His son, Tony Khan, is a huge wrestling fan. So they hooked up with those wrestlers along with Kenny Omega, Canadian wrestler who is oh. huge in Japan, one of the biggest stars internationally. Also a massive gamer. Yeah, I'm going to get into that because that's one of the things that actually sets AEW apart is they acknowledge much more than WWE ever has, that wrestling fans are fucking nerds. Like, the biggest nerds. Yeah. They literally play into that much more than WWE ever has. Um, so, what's really interesting about AEW is it is billionaire-owned, like the WWE. Um, but you have Cody Rhodes, the Young Bucks, and Kenny Omega serving as executive vice president. So, it is this, like, wrestler-owned company. And it is largely comprised, initially at least, of either people who were international stars, Japan, Mexico, Lucha Libre stars, or indie wrestlers who had never, who had wanted to maybe be really successful in the U.S., but didn't want to work for the WWE. Um, so people like Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks, people like that. Um, and then also a lot of talent who were fucking frustrated with the WWE, who had been sort of held up, isolated to the mid-card, or had been fired, at, released at some point, especially with COVID. This happened a lot. A lot of people were fired during COVID. Um, so you have a lot of people like the wrestler formerly known as Rusev, now Miro in AEW. You have Chris Jericho. You have Neville, formerly known as Neville, now the bastard Pac. Um, you've got, uh, Love that. again, Cody and Dustin Rhodes were, were with WWE for a long time. Um, just in, in a number of, oh, Sean Spears, who used to be Ty Dillinger. Um, obviously Dean Ambrose is one of the biggest ones who is now back to his indie name, John Moxley. So a lot of people who were just like pissed off about their lack of creative potential or the direction they were being taken by WWE or the fact that they couldn't be like famous in America without selling their soul to Vince McMahon. And um, so I think the thing about a lot of a lot of wrestling promotions that try to be the counterculture, try to be the alternative, they kind of have a variety of similar tactics over the years because WWE just has a, such a specific kind of product. They usually incorporate more hardcore and bloodier matches. They usually incorporate more Lucha Libre, Japanese, international styles, usually a greater diversity of body styles, a lot more smaller guys or smaller women. Um, a lot of times, you know, they have more like openly queer wrestlers and people who that's sort of like part of their persona, their their identity more directly than it would be in WWE. Um, a lot of times it's like a little bit more realistic and athletic focused, but there's still like a lot of fun and imagination. Um, but obviously, because it is billionaire owned, it has a budget that like Ring of Honor, or TNA, 
slash impact or Billy Corkin's new NWA um, or, or just like all of these other companies, they haven't been able to do stuff at this level. I mean, it is like super advertised and super sponsored. Um, mm-hmm. It's on TNT now. And I, I watched, they had our big pay-per-view last week, double or nothing. Um, and I watched an episode of their weekly show dynamite on TNT for the first time this week. And they do this fucking annoying thing called picture in picture where they will literally be during a match and they're like, okay, we're going to go to picture in picture mode. And then literally the match gets tiny and muted. And then a commercial plays next to it. And you just hear the commercial and it's awful. It's awful. That's the worst thing I've ever heard. Sometimes it's tolerable. Like they'll do it during matches that don't really matter. And so it's okay. But last night I was watching and the headlining match was Dustin Rhodes versus this guy named, Nick Cockatoo or something like that, who looks like Bruiser Brody, just this massive hairy man. And they were doing AEW's first ever bull rope match, which is a kind of match that was like the favorite of Dusty Rhodes back in the day, where you have two guys tied together with a rope with a cowbell in between, just beating the shit out of each other, slugging each other. Like real good old fashioned Southern wrestling, bunkhouse stampede style wrestling. Down on the farm. Smoky Mountain style. Jim Cornette style. Great shit. I'm loving it. They're juicing. It's great. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. They're wrapping the rope around each other. They're pulling each other out of the ring. Yeah. Are they like hitting each other's heads on the bell? They're, yeah. Like they're going into the crowd. Some luchador comes up and they're tangling him up in the rope. And then they go to fucking picture in picture mode. And you've got Applebee's That's- ads while men are bleeding. <laughs> It's absurd. What? They also had, this is like the the good version of this. One of their pay-per-views in 2019, they did what was called the Cracker Barrel Clash. Um, And they just had Cracker Barrel branded barrels outside of the ring with dinner rolls on top of them. Oh, they weren't playing checkers on them? I never thought, dude, they should have used, oh my God, they should have used the (laughs) the little tic-tac toe thing or whatever. Yeah. The the peg game. Like peg game. God, that would have been amazing. I mean, could you imagine throwing those into the ring? Like tax? Um, absolutely. I know, like throwing them down and slamming someone's body. They on did have something. a Lego match Mm-mm. actually, where somebody did that. They threw Legos into the ring. Um, that is mm, not for the it's faint of brutal. Heart. But I never thought I would see good old family friendly white supremacist Cracker Barrel like sponsoring a hardcore wrestling match. Um, what is the most fascist fast fast casual dieting establishment? <sighs> Part of me thinks, part of me leans toward Cracker Barrel just because, I mean, living in the right. South, I know about I mean, their, like, warehouses of, like, antiques and stuff. And I'm name. like, this is like you're collecting a certain <laughs> kind of history here. Yeah, it is. It is the Cracker Barrel. Yeah. Um, no, and so, so, well, so I never thought that I would see Cracker Barrel, of all places, sponsoring a hardcore wrestling match. But you've got Darby Allen, who is, like, a skater. That's his whole thing. He's like, he used to direct Tony Hawk trick videos and he's a really tiny guy. Half of his face is painted. He's recently hooked up with Sting, not the police front man, but the mm-hmm. wrestler, iconic wrestler. I was about to say, that musician's doing a lot of weird collabs these days. <laughs> yeah, between that and his tour with Shaggy, he's all yeah. over the place. Darby Allen, though, he's got a theme by the emo rapper Wickaface Springs Eternal of Goth Boy Click. He skates into the ring. So you got mm-hmm. him, you got Joey Janela 
who's uh, this dude from New, from Asbury Park, New Jersey, sort of Randy Savage, Macho Man inspired, but really hardcore wrestler. And then you got yeah. this tiny emo ass hot topic British guy like Jimmy Havoc. Don't I don't like oh those types God. of dudes. No. After after Davey Havoc from AFI. <laughs> I mean, he's got a very like fash haircut and like all of this stuff. So he, there's oh. some real scene vibes going on there. I would not be surprised. Oh, yeah. oh my god! But you know, they want to know an embarrassing okay, fact about me. Um, Is it related to the AFI? I am a lifetime member of the AFI fan club because they only sell lifetime memberships, and I got one when I was wow. like 16 years old. Take that to the bank. It's called the dis- It's called the despair faction. Ooh. Is it that a one-time like a payment and then stable. you're just locked in? Or is it? Yeah, I, against my will, I am an AFI fan for life. Was this, was this inflicted on you? No, I like, I wanted to, to join the special despair faction only internet. Form, oh, yeah. You know, and get the zines. And so like one time in college, long after I stopped listening to AFI, my mom was like, this weird magazine came oh for you. God. And it was my despair faction zine. The despair faction. It's a zine. Um, oh, my God. This so, this match funny. though literally like they throw tax into the ring and then Darby Allen like takes uh the tax and pours them in Jimmy Havoc's mouth and then they like take gaffer tape and tape him to the chair and then tape his mouth shut and with tax in his mouth. Um, that is wild. So yeah, so they you do have a little bit more hardcore stuff like that. And at Double or Nothing, they had this huge like they have this what's called a stadium stampede, which they literally got like action choreographers from John Wick to consult on this. But they just had this big <laughs> oh like match like in the Jaguar Stadium, um, which was empty. That started like on the field, just all these dudes brawling, and then went like into the ring. Like it, not, well, it, eventually they got back to the ring, like in the arena that's next to the stadium. But they went in all these offices and stuff. Urban Meyer like gave Chris Jericho a laptop to throw mm. at another dude. Um, so you've just got a lot of both ridiculous stuff like that. Um, but you've also got a little bit more sort of like serious old school vibes. Like they have like time limits. Um, like you would have in sort of like the 80s NWA, which is not something WF does. You've got a lot more sort of focus on athleticism. Um, but you've also got crazy characters. Like you've got Jungle Boy, who is the son of Luke Perry, uh, Jack Perry. He's like a Tarzan themed wrestler. And one of the great things that sets AEW apart is that they actually use like licensed themes. WWE doesn't really do that. Yeah. Jungle Boy has this like a tallow disco song called Tarzan Boy. That's his theme. And it's like he comes out and the crowd is like singing along and it's like, oh, 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 oh and it's so fun. And his part his tag team oh. partners are are the Luchasaurus, who is a luchador dinosaur, and Marco Stunt, who is this tiny, like 110-pound guy who literally does Fortnite emotes, like in the ring. Oh my god. Uh, and one I of the this. announcers Damn. is a like esports announcer and he's always like <coughs> Oh my always god. Like, I thought oh. I logged off Fortnite. Um <laughs> That's but so that's cute. one of the things. So I mentioned like they really play into that nerdiness, and that's one thing that really sets them apart is like there are a lot of game references. Um both like in the commentary, but also the wrestlers talk about games. They call the crowd gamer sometimes. Um and Kenny Omega is a huge gamer. This man literally says he has no time for relationships. 
He only wrestles and games. He's a monk, basically. He is named after Omega Weapon from Final Fantasy. His finishing move well. is named after Final Fantasy. He had a collaborative entrance designed with the creator of Undertale. Um, oh my god! He he has a uh, <laughs> he has a stream a YouTube you know series of course, and his sort of originally his character in the two thousands was sort of more like a Taku, and then he he teamed up with the villainous Bullet Club faction, and they were like, no, you're too bubbly. So he became the Cleaner, which was this persona that was inspired allegedly by. Uh, by uh, Albert Wesker from Resident Evil and the Cobra, the titular Cobra of Lester Stallone's movie Cobra. Um, and he also has come out to like some like Mega Man music uh, in the ring before. Just like so nerdy. This this man is just wrestling in games. This is unhinged. Um, so yeah, there's just a lot more of So there is a lot of that kind of, because I mean, especially these, like the people who are generally more into AEW are like more hardcore, like on very logged on cult wrestling fans, people who follow like Japanese wrestling. And if you follow Japanese wrestling, there is probably a good chance that you also follow other Japanese media that you probably watch anime or play JRPGs and stuff just because, I mean, there is, I mean, just general interest in Japanese culture increases your likelihood to be interested in that kind of stuff. But I think there's also a lot of crossover and interplay between those forms, just like there's a lot of crossover and interplay between American pro wrestling and American pop culture. Uh, it's the same kind of thing. So it just like leans into that a lot harder, um, to, which is, which is, I don't know. It's very like, it's both really rewarding for wrestling fans because they have a lot of old timers like coming in as in-ring managers and stuff and they pay props to a lot of icons but you also have all of these fun new characters and it's like actually good for the most part and like actually pretty fun and is kind of stuff that it feels like because it's a newer company it's not it's not sometimes as intimidating as trying to get people to watch mm -hmm. WWE and it's also better and a little bit less embarrassing and a little bit less cringeworthy and yeah. problematic than yeah. WWE. Um, so yeah, I uh, AEW, I'm very on board with the Elite. I'm all mm. in. Hell yeah. It reminds me a lot of comic books, yeah. right? The things that it is eluding, where I love, especially love like DC comics. <laughs> like I love the folk, like how old they are because it makes them sort of folkloric. Yeah. But that means that there's just so much material. Mm -hmm. And if like you really want to understand something like Grant, Grant Morrison's run on Batman, which is a look back at literally every single Batman adventure that's ever existed, you have to have like a pretty intimate understanding mm -hmm. of like how comics work. <laughs> and yeah. like the references he's cutting are so deep, like on purpose. And it, legitimately makes it more rewarding if you have a better understand if you like have read a lot of that shit and i've read a lot of comics um but when i'm trying to show my boyfriend for example the comics i like uh it's much easier for me to go into like a limited series like the vision which is just like you know who the vision is well he lives in dc now yeah no <laughs> i mean know? it does feel a little bit similar in some ways to like when dc did like what was it the new 52 where they're sort of like trying to you yeah. know keeping classic characters but wiping the slate clean a little bit there is yes, an element yes, to yes. watching aew where like if you really want to be a wrestling nerd you can follow all of these people's previous careers you can see what brought them here what mm -hmm. exactly maybe their frustrations were 
what the, you can know what their names were before, or you can just start watching and it can just be like this new talent. Like all these, you cannot know that Miro was Rusev before or any of that shit. And there are a lot of like old eighties legends. Like you have like Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard and people that most folks do not know as like in-ring managers and stuff, but it's refreshing when you compare to WWE because the way that WWE interacts with legends is they'll bring them out and give them like shitty matches that nobody wants to watch and that are just embarrassing for the people involved, for the people who are fans. It's just all horrible and it takes away from the actual new talent a lot of the time. But here they just mostly have them as like commentators, referees, managers, valets whatever just kind of likes or tag team partners sometimes and they've got a lot of amazing commentators you've got big show mark henry jim ross the little voice of wwe people who are so associated with that brand who have all kind of basically jumped ship and are now becoming commentators for AEW. so it's very interesting it's it's very fulfilling to the longtime fan but i think an easy place to start for for the uninitiated which i'm trying to wrestle pill i'm trying to beef pill everybody yeah <laughs> You could start wrestling. <laughs> I'm thinking about it. Honestly. Yeah. What would your Oh, I have this all planned out. I have a whole okay. arc. Okay. An arc. A tag okay, team yeah. arc. Tag team called um the Sister Missionaries. Basically like Mormon missionary themed, oh, modest yes. is hottest, very <sighs> conservative, trying to convert yeah. people. A little bit like um, around the early 2000s, WWF had this stable called the Right to Censor, which they literally looked like Mormon missionaries, and they were based off like the Parents Advisory Council, who was trying to like censor WWF at that time. And they're like, no, you know, very stern, scolding. Yeah. yeah. So it would basically be like that. You have these two whip like women in long skirts, who are just like trying to convert people and then they are challenged to a match where if they lose they have to chug beer stone cold austin style and they lose the wow. match and one of them of enjoys it one of them likes the beer and oh, falls Jesus. from religion becomes a sinner and then they start feuding and then the next week the, the one who's feuding, the one who's the center comes out in like a Austin 316 shirt and the other one's like, oh, that's blasphemous. Um, mm -hmm. And then they like go at it um, and the tag team breaks up and uh, yeah, that's the arc. Also, I think that I had yes. another idea, a hacker wrestler named Motherboard. Oh, also, oh, yes. Irma Vep wrestler just you got a latex oh, yeah. black suit wrestler who's like a thief who like steals things from people in the mm -hmm. locker room but also like screams in french exactly and people are oh, like who is God. it who is it and you could incorporate that into the sister missionaries like irma vep could be the one who's fallen away and it could be like oh my god she's a criminal like yeah. you know um and then the other one well then the one the one who left the the it becomes like rebrands as like an activist and like cult survivor and then the one oh who like he stays religious becomes like more and more like unhinged and like evangelical and like snake handler mm -hmm. and then falls under the sway of some like evil preacher or something like that and they become a like villainous stable um that sounds this is so fun yeah. 
I like this. It's like becomes very prisoners at the end. Could you imagine a like polygamist wrestling stable, like a man and his sister wives, and like the sister wives come out and are like beating up the opponent and stuff, and like whipping them with their long hair and like. Um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of potential. I don't yeah. know. I'm, I've been. This, yeah, I the think brain is you've just stumbled racing. onto a winner. Yeah, I've been looking. For sure. You know, I've, I've looked at some wrestling school websites. Mm-hmm. The wheels are turning, unfortunately. No. Yeah, what's it take to get one of those writing <laughs> jobs? I mean, I would not want it. I saw there was some, like, Twitter comedian who was like, ooh, I got a job for WWE SmackDown. And I was like, whoa, that's really cool. Like, I, I, I want to do that. And then I thought about it for, like, two seconds. And I was like, actually, no. Like, there's, like, it would make you. Let's take like, a job that nobody respects yeah. already, and then add it in and a one, in a one place. that might make me hate wrestling. Yeah, because you, you have to travel, yeah. uh, and there's like six month turnover. You know, so many famous people like Patrice O'Neill, Freddie Prince Jr., people like that have been writers for the WWE at various points, and none of them lasted longer than like a year. Um, so. Yeah, you can tell. In all of the things that are frustrating about wrestling, how little respect they have for the writers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? And, like, I, that's unfortunate and meaningful. I'm just interested in seeing how AEW progresses because it's trying to be, like, a better version, a better kind of wrestling. Yeah, yeah it's, very, it's very interesting to see if it will become... I mean, because every attempt at this has fizzled out usually. I mean, usually what the problem is with stuff like WCW is they end up throwing too much stuff at the wall and not enough of it sticks. Or they just get too wrapped up in, like, specifically trying to feud with Vince McMahon and the WWE and making it about them and not about, like whatever sets the company apart. And it just is, like, this trap of just, like, I don't know getting stuck in this like war and it's just like i think it's better to just sort of sometimes pretend like the competition doesn't exist and just do your own thing yeah uh and so they they do have their jabs at times and i feel like maybe they're tiptoeing a little bit of a line where they might go too into that but they also have established a lot of relationships with companies around the world like in the U.S., they have talent deals with Impact and NWA. They have talent deals with AAA in Mexico, um, with New Japan and All Japan. And so they're like very – like Kenny Omega's thing now is holding belts in All Elite, <laughs> Impact, AAA, uh, and I think – New Japan or another promotion, but he holds belts in like four companies right now, and that's his thing is just being this international superstar. So it is like a new era, and it and it's both like a callback to like the regional era where you had regional territories sharing talent, but it's a new version of that because it's inter- it's global, baby, globalism. Anyways, that's enough wrestling. I've I went too all in. I'm I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> you just it's all it's literally all you've been watching. Yeah, it it is. It quite literally is. Damn. Well, I haven't really watched that many movies lately, but like the ones that have been clicking and have motivated me to start watching again were a couple of Todd Haynes movies. I've seen Classic. a few before, but yeah, I watched Velvet Goldmine last week and I was like, damn, okay. This guy can make a movie. And then yeah. 
I watched Safe, and then I rewatched Dark Waters, which that's like the third or fourth time I've seen that. That movie is so. Oh, good. you've seen Akita? I'm, yeah, I really like. That I'm movie. glad because whenever people like haven't seen it, usually like they're like, "Oh, you meant that really stereotypical looking like legal drama." No, but it's like compelling, especially because it like literally is like, "Oh, by the way, this movie has no ending." <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean. It really just like forces you to look at something that you don't want to think at. Yeah, and that's the that's the thing that's weird to to when I was watching it this time I was just like this is really just like telling me a lot of information about science and stuff like that and it's somehow like sneaking that into this like yeah like very like pacula paranoid thriller kind of mode but so much of the movie mm-hmm. is literally just information. I'm like yeah. I mean it's crazy I didn't know this but it's like it's almost like this is like not that it's all real but it's like a documentary and that i'm just like taking mm-hmm. a lot away from this i mean it's shows how how skillful the movie making is because it doesn't feel unfun to watch that it doesn't feel like you're just having information dumped in your in your lap it feels like it is letting you be a fly on the wall in a very like naturalistic way it, like it makes sense that this movie was nominated for an Oscar when you watch it, even though it is presented to you as sort of like a very baity, like Aaron Brockovichy, like legal drama thing. It's like not that. It's like kind of it's horrific. Yeah. But it also, I mean, the one thing I always remember about that movie is like even in scenes where they're talking to you about the horrible pollution that has occurred, nature looks beautiful like the mud looks yeah. beautiful everything well, looks beautiful even like not even like the natural parts but also in like the more like kind of urban like landscapes yeah. and stuff he'll like just shoot like a bunch of like chain restaurants or yeah. like just corporate gas stations and stuff in this way that's like very evocative and like sometimes like spiritual feeling yeah yeah it really wants you to respect the the community that is here to respect and love them well like, that's the thing about that is that it like understands that like community grows up around these things sometimes it's not all just a corporation mm-hmm. invading but sometimes it's like that's like it's you know whether you like it or not it's like part of how the community works at this point yeah yeah you know like they feel allegiance to a company because it's a company that sustained a community you know it, it that's just because of the way that American history has worked. That is something that was allowed to happen. You know, company towns never really stopped happening. You know, we just stopped having them be officially branded parts of the company. <laughs> so, like, it's it's inextricable sometimes. And, like, separating the two from each other, extracting them sometimes requires, like, the community to go through this a collective grief process. Which is what you see in the movie. Yeah, well, it's like, I don't know, like, I have, like, family that live in more rural parts of the South than I do. And, like, to them, like, the only grocery store around is Walmart because it came in and, like, closed out all the other ones. And that's just, like, you know, if the Walmart were to go away, like, I don't really know what would happen in that town. I don't know, just situations like that kind of grow over time. But anyway, so that's one thing in the movie, like you were saying, Gita, that I just don't really see reflected in many things that are, like, about why you know like chemical corporations are like not that great yeah yeah i just it's it's thoughtful and it's like disappointing it's all the more disappointing then that 
Mark Ruffalo did the weird dumbass thing oh. he did with his like retracting support for Palestine because he's like Disney pilled now. But it like it's like it made me respect him a little bit more. But you know, I guess money corrupts everything, so whatever. Yeah, I don't know. The movie <laughs> is like somehow like the most nihilistic thing I've ever seen, but also ends on like it a really hopeful is. note, and I'm just like, I don't know how you swing that. Right? Like it literally presents you with a hopeless situation. Yeah. But it's but like the ultimate message is, and this guy is still here, which feels hopeful. Yeah. Well, I mean, like even like from the beginning, like it starts off with that that scene that's just copied from the beginning of jaws where it's the teenagers like listening to that waylon jennings song stop the world and let me off stop the world and let me off they're going skinny dipping in like this deadly lake but instead of like a shark it's this like boat spraying chemicals on the lake is the yeah. thing but it starts off with that like saying stop the world and let me off and then yeah it just keeps just going like- yeah, like a lot of the messages, the damage you've done to the earth is already unfixable. Mm-hmm. But in general, I mean, but, oh, yeah. go ahead, Kido. No, but the, but again, I mean, like the, the end result of like real message always feels like, but it's still worth it for us to give a shit. Like it's still worth it to try to fix some of this. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it in it, the ultimately it's like such a humanist like expression of, uh, of a, of a like a green like environmental message because it's like no but like people matter like the health of these people matter and, like the uh these people like it is totally possible for us to live in a way that does not absolutely destroy our environment so we should probably do it because it's worth it for everyone yeah. well that's so much of the heart of the movie too i think is just understanding like the reason why you should like give a shit about this thing that is pretty it's a pretty uh, tough battle is because the people yeah yeah i don't want to watch that again yeah it's really good uh anyway i mean that's really all i've been watching is just some of todd haynes's movies but you know what hasn't been said about those (laughs) well with that should we uh i guess pivot to the topic that brought us here today which i think that sort of ending with a movie that has a sort of veneer of Oscar bait, but did not mm-hmm. really actually get any awards and is also like a lot, I don't know, both sort of like politically more thoughtful, but also um, aesthetically has a lot more going on than most of those kinds of movies. Um, you know, I think it sort of brings up a lot of interesting notions about the idea of prestige, mm-hmm. which is our topic for today. And I guess, how should we like lay out just the idea of what prestige means? Because it's not exactly like a distinct list of like aesthetics or a distinct yeah. list of like qualities, but it's like almost like a motivation, a vibe. Yeah it's let's let's lay it out i mean i understand prestige through the history of how we started using this word which is through television Mm -hmm. and we started talking about prestige television a lot with hbo dramas it's not tv Mm -hmm. it's hbo specifically the first time i started hearing of this it was a genre classification that included the sopranos but 
what's interesting is I think that a lot of the things that are called prestige now don't really have a lot in common with something like The Sopranos. Um, I mean, I think The Sopranos is a lot better than a lot of the things that we call prestige now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, especially in because of the ways in which it it defies what would become the genre conventions or the aesthetic markers of like prestige media, prestige movies, prestige video games, prestige television. Um, from there, you know, we get from like from The Sopranos, you sort of see like it's like Mad Men, then Breaking Bad, but then like something started happening where there also simultaneously were a lot of video games that started picking up on some of the storytelling techniques from especially Breaking Bad, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, like the the Telltale games. Oh, and The Walking yeah, Dead. Yeah, I was going to say the show and the games. Yeah. Yeah. T-W-D. The Walking Dead, which like... Yes. I think The Walking Dead, like, let's take a second to talk about that. Because I remember watching the pilot when it came out and thinking, this is a really smart, intelligent, like, thoughtful take on zombies. And then the show actually started and it was so much stupider <laughs> than the pilot was. You know, as they yeah. say, it's a, it's a zombie of a show itself, you know, staggering on somehow. Mm. Is it still yeah. going? I think it's like Holy going in shit. several variants. There's like a couple like gaming YouTubers. I like just check in on every once in a while and they like have, so they have ads for like an app. That's like a new Walking Dead like app. Two things about The Walking Dead that are also really stand out to me. Being somebody, I also only saw the pilot. But now, you know, I see it on like bus ads and and in the subway and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. You know, it's just like TWD. You know, it means nothing. Like it's just, you know, this like redundant acronym that's just like, if you don't know what that is already... Then you're like, wait, what? What? TWD on AMC? I don't know what that is. Like, that could be wrestling. Yeah. Like, I don't know what that is. Yeah. Like, it could be a bank. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but also, yeah, it's it's just a brand. It's a and brand, also, essentially, at this point. Oh, God. What was my other point about The Walking Dead? Um, oh, the re- I mean, this was also something Breaking Bad, but those two shows together, I think... Uh, you know, they had their Chris Hardwick hosted talk shows, Talking Dead and I guess Talking Bad or whatever. I, guess, I think that's it. Yeah, good riddance to that fucking nightmare, yeah, man, truly, right? Oh my God. One time, I, really forgot. I paused a Blu-ray of something nerdy, I don't know. I paused it because I was wanting to go to the bathroom, which you mean means like normally when you pause something, you don't want it to be playing anything. On this Blu-ray, when you pause the movie, Chris Hardwick popped up to start talking about some kind of dumb feature he was on on that deep on that Blu-ray. Well, that's one of the the great things that about is shocking. about my one of my favorite this filmmakers, is- Rob Zombie, <laughs> is you get to see Chris Hardwick die in House of a Thousand Corpses, and also he's like a talk show host in Halloween too, I think. Um, but those shows, you know, spurned su- the, the whole subgenre of the prestige TV recap talk show. You know, now um, Chris Gethard, like he hosts like a recap show mm-hmm. of Dark Side of the Ring on Vice. And which I mean, that mm-hmm. also comes out of like something that really came al- a- a- along with the rise of prestige TV is the rise of TV recaps and, mm-hmm. you know, AV Club, Vulture. Yeah, very articles. specific kind of online blogging, and and it's this a sort of chicken and egg thing where it's like, at what point do these things exist because of the things that talk about them, you know? Like, at what point does the discourse 
is the media generating the discourse and at what point is the discourse generating the media you know what i mean yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i feel like breaking bad was a an especially distinct victim of that because like i mean aspects of it were just like okay this is just an example of a show being so popular it becomes part of the monoculture Mm -hmm. like i i really appreciated that sort of um the essay that the actress who played the wife in Breaking Bad wrote in the New York Times, because I felt like it did, it is like an, it is an important piece of historical literature when it comes to understanding a reactionary aspect of culture that was rising at the time and is now becoming dominant, right? Like, I think like, that is an aspect of reality affecting this show that shows shows how like it is historically important. But I also think that like you cannot tell me in the first season of that show that the intention was to make um what's his name? The main character into a bad guy. That entire first season yeah. of that show is about how his actions are heroic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You can't tell me this was a grand, like, plotted narrative. Well, like, I'm watching this and I can see markers that show me that we're supposed to be rooting for this guy. That we're supposed to think that his wife is I mean, is he's a, a literal and, like, fucking cancer victim. Like, that yeah, he's is... a cancer victim who's a That teacher. is, like, textbook, like, save the cat shit. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. You no, know, like, it is... It is only after people started interpreting the show as being about a villainous main character that the show was definitively leaning into that. Mm -hmm. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, especially knowing that uh, the show Rudder, who was like also is very familiar with Internet culture, who also wrote for X-Files, which had a very vocal Internet culture. You can't tell me he wasn't reading criticism of the show. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing about the sh- the grouping of shows y'all are talking about is that they were all made for AMC. Mm-hmm. Wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wild. That's true. Like it, it, that really also that was a network that was really only playing old movies yeah. for a like very the, long I would, time. The, you could watch The Green Mile just about any day of the week on there. Pretty much. If I was sick and in high school, I would turn on AMC because there would be a movie yeah. on. Yeah, no, no, I mean, I had swine flu in high school and I stayed home and I watched Witness with Harrison Ford like three days in a row on AMC. And I mean, they were, they oh, yeah. did previously have a much more like TCM model. Because um, I remember like earlier, even mid 2000s, they still didn't really have commercials. Um, and it was more of a little bit TCM like or Cinemax yeah. kind of vibe or, or something like that. Yeah, there'd be like longer breaks between movies but they play the whole movie like lightly edited for content yeah. essentially um, but that's also a, i think such a telling pivot of like all of these uh, i mean fx also um but these channels that predominantly focused on playing movies on television or playing reruns of shows were getting into like original scripted content Mm-hmm. And and that eventually culminates with like the m- the more contemporary equivalent of those kind of cable networks, which are streaming services, ultimately getting into the yeah. same sort of territory. Yeah. And I was reading, you know, I had not really like thought of it in these terms exactly, but I was reading an article today um, for Dig Boston by my friend Jake Mulligan, which is about like just like the state of cinema and also on cinema. Um, the the Tim Heidecker, Greg Turkington, multimedia empire. Um, 
but he was talking Look, we're all friends of the Vietnam yeah, yeah. here right uh, he are. was saying <laughs> that like you know now there's like the major Hollywood studios and then the like major Silicon Valley studios and I guess I had just not thought of it in those terms explicitly of like the streaming networks are the like Silicon Valley studios and that's like a different Hollywood and, and mm-hmm. industry but it's the same kind of thing of these places that were essentially just like content dumping grounds I mean like Amazon Prime is like the most lawless garbage streaming service and now they have now they have small acts and underground railroad and documentaries like time and all this like Mm -hmm. political important artwork they like made a new tom clancy movie for it with michael b jordan yeah the amazon tom clancy universe is a little troubling. They also a gym office, like in the the nerdosphere. They had for a while, like dipped their toe into being on the vanguard of bringing like anime over into the West. Which I think, at the end of the day, Netflix and Crunchyroll are duking it out, and Amazon let it go. Yeah. But they brought over like Maiden Abyss, which I like. I have my own reasons for not really wanting to watch that are. I don't know, too much to get into, literally right now. But it is an incredibly beautiful show. <laughs> it is like a really beautifully animated show, very critically acclaimed. Mm-hmm. And then they also just have like weird random bullshit, just random fucking shit. Like Rain of Fire, the the dragon movie with Christian Bale. Oh, Mayle. yes. Yeah. That is, that <laughs> is, well, that's to me an AMC classic. That to me is one of the movies I think of when I think yeah. of watching AMC, which that is a movie I was thinking because there's like a scene where Christian Bale and like post apocalyptic world is like telling the story of Star Wars to kids. Like it's like a campfire tale. Mm-hmm. David, my partner David, watched this movie literally this week. And told me about this scene. Please go ahead. Oh no, that's all. Just literally all I had to say about Rain of Fire. But I don't oh know. God. That just felt like some yeah. kind of point cute. could be extrapolated from that about yeah. media. Who knows? Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're clearly leading into a pastiche. Yeah, but I like really liking it and like really liking that they're doing that. It's another again, just a joyful movie. I just like movies where you can tell that people are having a good time. Hmm. A lot of the time. Yeah. And I feel like, I don't know, I feel like with prestige stuff, I mean, the thing I wanted to say about TMC, mm-hmm. AMC, is that the reason why they were able to change their brand from something that was like just, we play classic movies, um, popcorn classics, is because they had the implied prestige of that classic cinema yes. again to say like oh this the stuff that we produce will be different from other television shows that is really and, true yeah damn you know ultimately that's like not true when you look at sort of like how like especially breaking bad breaking bad is just a soap opera that is shot in a, a different way than most shows are it's shot. the yeah. same shit with like downton abbey you know my parents yeah. love that my mother would not watch a conventional daytime soap, but it's literally that, but just mm-hmm. like gussied up for Anglophiles. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it turns out everyone likes melodrama. I'm actually, I'm watching Berserk also and reading Berserk for the first time. And the thing is, uh, Kintaro Mura, she 
has said like the, he really loved Rose of Versailles, which is a, like a shoujo manga, like a girl's mm-hmm. manga that's all about romance and political and machinations like and stuff like that. And pretty boy, very pretty boys. And he was really inspired by melodrama. Mm-hmm. And it turns out melodrama is just compelling. And when deployed correctly or, or in specific ways, can like heighten the emotional content of your serious dramatic work. Mm-hmm. But it's that these like aesthetic markers of the way they shot things like became then indicative of like how seriously intellectually we should take it. It was like unfortunately the message that Hollywood and television took forward and then through The Walking Dead came into with games. Which the Walking Dead, like the reason people think it's like that Walking Dead telltale um, visual novel, the reason people really like it, they say the writing is really good, but a lot of that has to do with it just like emotionally manipulating you with melodrama yeah. because of that little girl's relationship to the dad that you were playing as. Yeah. Like, you know that guy is toast from the beginning of that game. You can't tell me you don't know. Yeah, and also. It, it's a zombie game. The way, like. Well, so I think what you're indicating about, like, good writing is, like, just kind of one of the the ways people kind of discuss, like, generally prestige things. But in The Walking Dead, like, I don't know, the way people talk about, like, good games writing or, like, script writing in a game or something like that, especially in that one, is, like you said, it's just, like, very emotionally manipulative. It's creating the most ridiculous situations and making you feel guilty for, like, what happened in them. Yeah. The, oh, X character will remember that. Like, it, it is doing it on purpose. It's trying to twist the knife in every single moment. And it works. It, like, definitely works. But it's different from what I would consider, I don't know, good or literary writing. Yeah. It is effective melodrama. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's serialized writing. You know, it's, it's like something yeah. that's sort of, I guess, just like keeps stringing you along enough both in terms of plot twists but also just sort of like emotions and relationships and confrontations and all of that kind of just classic like melodramatic stuff and it's not like that doesn't reach like a height where things can become classic or even literary i mean Dickens is a serial writer. Yeah. And one of my favorite writers and one of the funniest writers. And like, but Great Expectations has so much to say thematically. Or even something more direct, like uh, A Christmas Carol, has like a very specific point it's trying to make while stringing you along across these, the serial novel. You know, mm-hmm. um, or even something like um, Sinclair, the the novel all about, you know, how capitalism is bad, but everyone was actually more focused on the horrible and sanitary conditions at canning factories. <laughs> um, that, like, that kind of stuff, like, you can absolutely usually text, use these techniques alongside, like, more literary techniques, but it it is, it's, it takes a little bit more work I think especially in visual media, you can do it really lazily. Like, you can just sort of, like, give yourself a coating of paint Mm -hmm. that, like, covers up a kind of sloppier construction or, like, it, it, like, becomes very easy to read a lot more into something than is actually present. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's, like, a particular endemic to video games because you are so glued into it emotionally, because you are so 
like hooked into the characters even if like in a lot of these games all you're doing is watching them in really long cutscenes because you do perform actions that mm-hmm. you know like they i'm thinking particularly of the last of us like everything's very deliberate and like it does feel very precarious there's a baseline level of game design that is really effective in making you feel like you are joel and you are emotionally attached to him and emotionally attached to ellie yeah um but it's just that they give it like the visual markers that tell you you should be taking this as seriously as you would take the Sopranos, yeah. mm-hmm. as seriously as you would take the Walking well, Dead. Um, that makes you see things that the game is not really compellingly doing. Actually, you know, it wants to tell you that this is a grand narrative about violence, mm-hmm. but it doesn't ever really cash its own checks. Yeah. That game, like, you know? come, it just is constantly, like, in, it's, like, suggesting, like, isn't this just, like, No Country for Old Men? Isn't this just, like, The Road? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Isn't this, Yeah. I don't know, it feels like it's constantly, like, evoking those things, and it's, like, in the setting, and sometimes in, like, the music, and the way all these different things are deployed, but, but, I mean, yeah, I remember at the time, a lot of people were like, oh, this is a really interesting meditation on violence. This is a... <laughs> I don't know, it, like, yeah. confronts the player with no, all this it's stuff. No, like, it's like, is violence bad? Question mark? Yes, that's the meditation. Yeah, <laughs> well, know, yeah. it not... just, like, makes you do the violence over and over and over again. But it's like, I mean, you were talking about, like, Dark Souls using repetition in a pretty effective way earlier. And I feel like The Last of Us is, like, not at all. Like, I don't know, it just feels like you're supposed to think it's awesome until afterward. And then it's like, that was actually bad. Yeah. It's, I feel like I had a similar hypnotic effect when I played the Bioshock Infinite for the first time. Cause like, We're just bringing out all uh, of for them. The first, like, for the first time, it really gets you with this like spectacle. You know, The first half hour of the game, I still will say, I think is are pretty perfect in terms of design. The way it like guides you into yeah. the, the this world in the sky, unlike everything you've ever seen before, when you first get on the sky hook, it is like absolutely thrilling. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't have any more tricks to pull after that. And it's like depiction of what like systematic and cultural racism looks like is cartoonish and like an absolute weird nightmare. And it is itself a very racist game. Yeah. <laughs> like it's like you once you are once you spend like even one second thinking about that world, it falls apart. And like that to me is like when I think of a prestige as a pejorative, that's what I'm thinking mm-hmm. of. I think, like, there's stuff in that we call prestige. Actually, it's pretty good. Like, I love Sopranos. But when I'm thinking about stuff where, like, I, I hate prestige media, I'm, like, thinking of, like, the end of Game of Thrones, right? Where, like, it comes together and it turns out these people don't actually know anything at all. <laughs> They're all idiots. Yeah, I mean, I think that, Kita, you sort of raised an interesting point at the beginning when sort of laying out a sort of conception of what prestige is by basically saying, you know, that it sort of comes together as a concept initially with with television and thinking about how like you know obviously there was a long period of time and still can be with certain kinds of movies to a certain extent uh you know people who did not take cinema seriously and people who'd like did not think that cinema had prestige or or whatever we associate with that whatever that word entails and means but it's been a pretty long time where like movies have been really taken seriously by most people as an art form to some extent. 
or at least something capable of like generating sincere feelings and worthy of preserving and taking seriously and, and all of that stuff. I mean, I think that kind of, even if most people don't, even if movie going and watching movies is not quite as dominant a part of culture as it might've been at some point in the 20th century, I still think most people you would talk to would be like, Oh yeah, movies like are important, I guess. Like, you know, I think most people care a little bit about movies. Um, but I think that, I don't know, just thinking back to, well, how did cinema become art? Because obviously it was a sort of sideshow thing for a long time or something not considered worth preserving or not considered worth taking seriously or thinking about beyond the moment that you see it or, or whatever. Um, and I mean, obviously I think a lot of that sort of comes with like, I don't know, maybe like the fifties and sixties with sort of a lot of like changes and sort of rising, just like a rising development of like film criticism and sort of cinephilia mm. as like written forms and auteurism and all of that stuff. Um, and, and just thinking about prestige, because, you know, it's not, as Seth, you, you said, you know, it's not this, like, clear set of tropes or aesthetic markers, necessarily. There are, I think, signifiers and things we think about. But I feel like it's much closer to something like noir, which was, when those movies were coming out, like, a really, you know, there are genres um, amongst noir a little bit, like, you know, hard-boiled detective, you know, femme fatale kind of more like social issue relationship driven movies mm -hmm. that aren't really crime stuff. There's like a whole subgenre of nuclear paranoia yeah. movies. Yeah, Boxing. it's a lot of showing like un the underbelly of a city, the lower class kind of network, all these yeah, things. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of different yeah. kind of actual like literal industrial genres sort of within that as sort of like what those movies would have been like tagged as at the time. But they became sort of clumped together and seen as one sort of distinct wave of movies because of like French film critics being like, hey, these movies all have some things in common. You know, they're coming out after the war in much quicker, greater succession than they were during the war. Because obviously movie, American movies were not coming out in France during World War II for mm -hmm. obvious reasons. And, and now people think of noir as a solid genre, you know. The detective with the fedora, mm -hmm. shadows, contrast, again, the femme fatale, certain aesthetic markers. Mm -hmm. And I think much more of that has to do with the idea of like neo-noir than noir itself. Or like, mm -hmm. you know, there are all these letterbox lists that are like neon noir with like Refn movies mm -hmm. and fucking, I don't know, every movie with bisexual lighting ever. Oh um, but, you know, I just think that it's like once something has these, like, things that are inspired by it, then it becomes much more, like, codified and commodified yeah. than what it was actually at that time. And so now that people are like, oh, neo-noir is influenced by noir, it's paying homage, then noir becomes this, like, clear thing in your mind. And I think that's sort of what the journey of prestige is to where, like, you have these certain long in-depth serialized stories in a medium that has historically been pretty disposable um, that are trying for something a little bit different. And yeah. so then now games is like, okay, we saw how this industry took a path to being serious, taken seriously. Let's yeah. emulate that. And so at the beginning, I, I think of all these things, you know, prestige is like, what is it? Like, it's like grit, grim, grim, <laughs> 
you know what i don't know you know it's yeah, a little desaturated color palette yeah but then over time now i feel like it's at a point where it's something very kind of almost sort of clear i mean in different ways there are different versions of it like i think you could like some i mean there's like you know the mass market paperback adaptation middle-aged Oscar actress vehicle prestige miniseries subgenre, you know, Big Little Lies, Mayor of East Town. There's a fucking yep. mm-hmm. Julianne Moore, Pablo Lorraine, Stephen King one. Sharp whatever. objects. Yeah, sharp objects. Lizy story, I think is what it's called with Julianne Moore. You know, there's like that's prestige as much as the yeah. Sopranos, as much as any crime thing. Or I guess those that's all kind of crime stuff, but a different version of it. Mm-hmm. Uh the feminine version, the softer yeah. sex uh, version of prestige, but it's still prestige nonetheless. Um, and then you have the sad dad, you know, genre yeah. from mm-hmm. Breaking Bad to The Last of Us. And The Last of Us, I played about six hours of. You know, the whole thing is like your shit's breaking all the time, your guns are breaking, you have to repair things and patch them together. But it's also a game that, like, you know, like, one of my weed dealers loves because of the multiplayer you know it's like it's not mm-hmm. actually like this really this serious meditation on violence it's like a challenging violent game yeah, yeah. it's yeah it's a game that is about the spectacle of violence as much as it says is about this thing being bad yeah. it really is don't do this cool thing the video game you know, there's aspects of it that are frustrating. Like you have to like the the menu where you craft things doesn't actually pause time, so you have to like be very judicious mm-hmm. about where and when and when you pause. And, yeah. You know, everything takes a long time. All the movements are very physical, so you have to again, you know, really think about how and when you move and what actions you take. But it's also like a game where you can see things through walls. You know, it's very video gamey. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is very, I mean, Naughty Dog as a studio, they are incredibly detail-oriented. So the game is beautiful. Mm. And I think the the one thing it does that I think is actually evocative and interesting is sort of the way it shows how nature has overta- overtaken human society. But, like, and it's also, like, ultimately I think the most nihilistic thing about the game is, like, it ultimately kind of says... Nature is overtaking human society. Human society, civilization is dwindling. Yeah. And like, also, that's probably good is the ultimate message because you just end up doing horribly violent things all throughout the video game. And the only moments of joy are the ones where you interact with nature and see nature. Like, I'm thinking in particular of the like giraffe scene near the end of the game where they wander through the zoo and you pet a giraffe. Like, that is like maybe the happiest and most joyful moment of the Mm -hmm. game. And it's like right around the time you commit like one of the most heinous acts that like I've seen a main character take in a narrative. It's a genuinely affecting moment, but like you're saying, it's like in this like really emotional bottleneck, like very much like forcing you through this like one intense emotion to this other one. And for that reason, you know. And it like works really well. But it's also very manipulative. It doesn't feel earned in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. because it's like the whole rest of the game is this slog of unpleasantness after unpleasantness where like everyone disappoints you. You can't trust anyone. And like you find out at the end, like the very person you're trying to protect, like they're you're taking her, you're leading her to her death, essentially. And it is like a betrayal after betrayal after betrayal 
And I feel like a lot of players identified so much with Joel that they didn't really understand that, like, a person wrote this. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like, the fiction, when you when you break away from it, like, the one thing that I, I revisited this game around the time Last of Us Part 2 came out, which was during the pandemic, when I was, I'm in New York, yeah. the shit was pretty bad. Like, it, we were playing it, me and my boyfriend David were playing it, and... I just turned to him at one point and he's like, okay, our lives aren't like that dissimilar from what this is in the beginning yeah. right now, right? Like, there is like a curfew, you know? We do sirens. like limited have. Li there are sirens constantly. Like, it does, you know, feel like there are places where we can and can't go and like how like commerce is like very tightly regulated. But you know what? Like, all of us got involved in mutual aid during that time. Like, mutual aid was very effective in New York City and very helpful. And, like, the government wasn't doing shit, but we all helped each other. Yeah. We all got to know people on our block. Like, my roommate was doing mutual aid grocery deliveries, like, whenever she had the chance. I was giving to these, like, you know, economically to these organizations when I had the chance. And, you know, even now, I feel like we've come out of, uh, we're coming on, on the other side as people are getting vaccinated and, like, I'm working with the people mm -hmm. in my building. We're sort of, like, formed a tenants union to deal with, like, landlord problems in a different way yeah. than we used to and also like you know what was it that a lot of people did with time when they were like unemployed and at home and scared they went to protests and there was like a whole uprising yep. because of people yep because in large part because of that like uncertainty and like instability and the lack of government sort of care or assistance I think, yeah. uh, you know, had to do with a lot of people's feelings at that time and, the, and their mm -hmm. more willingness to, to go out there than they would otherwise. You know, they weren't fucking, like, forming street gangs and, like, going, making yeah. shivs. Yeah, you know, it's like the one group that is portrayed as altruistic with Fireflies are also, like, trying to get one over on yeah. you and are lying to you. And it's like, okay, so nobody wants to help people just for the sake of helping people? Yeah. <laughs> that is not my experience of the world whatsoever. Totally. But also, like, this was Naughty Dog's game after they'd made, like, three Uncharted games and were, like, criticized pretty heavily there because people were just like, you're just like this, this, like, white treasure hunter going to, like, the global yeah. south and shooting a lot of people who live there and, like, taking their yep. history... And so then they made this, and it's essentially, like, a lot of that very same skin, very individualistic, um, very based on, like, individual mm -hmm. survival um, and things like that. And kind of, like, always having betrayal. There's no possible real – or there's no, like, possibility of, like, any kind of collective forming except for, like, a bad one, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, th I think that, you know, you bring up Uncharted and, like, my version of Uncharted is Hotbox Cannon game – 50 cent blood on the sand um which <coughs> is like a is a much like i don't know uncharted is a triple a genre like very conventional game pretty much like you know it's 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 just like a like a video game you know what i mean like it's just like yeah well it's like a big like console seller yeah it's and and but 50 cent blood on the sand which was inspired by uh, Leo DiCaprio's Blood Diamond kind of prestige forerunner a little bit. Um, yeah. But mm -hmm. I don't know, 50 Cent Blood on the Sand is like it, 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 I think is maybe an interesting parallel to like, in the middle you have Uncharted 
On the right, you have The Last of Us, and on the left, you have 50 Cent Blood on the Sand. Kind of, I feel like the two routes of, you know, are either you make something that's kind of trashy and fun and just throwing things at the wall or making something really self-serious and stern that is like, look at me, I'm art. I ultimately feel like 50 Cent Blood on the Sand does something that's a little bit more interesting than anything in The Last of Us because basically that game, you're like playing a concert for your 50 Cent G unit and you're playing some concert for like a Saudi prince and he pays you with a crystal skull and the crystal skull gets stolen. So you have to go on this like heist adventure, yeah. you know, fucking up the Middle East. I hate it that yeah, you know, to get, uh, to get your skull back is basically Sex in the City 2 with G unit. Um, but I'm always seeing that 50 Cent Blood in the Sand is like yeah. Sex in the City 2 with that's what you. That's what you say. That's what D- David Ehrlich said when he played that game, probably. Um, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Probably. But, but, um, you know, I don't know. I just think thinking about that in like the history of just sort of like black musicians and a lot of rappers and hip hop artists not being, uh, financially compensated or fairly paid for their work or not being able to have ownership of their work is kind of a little bit, you know, 50 cent, maybe working out like frustrations with the industry, uh, through this game a little bit in some way accidentally. Um, Mm -hmm. but it's also fun. Like you have, there's like a cursing button in the game. Um, and you can play as the different members of G unit. Uh, whereas the last of us, you know, I don't know what that, it doesn't say anything fucking interesting. It doesn't say anything that any piece of media has not said before. Like all of the things that it's aping, you know, like something like children of men. It's just like, it's saying the same kind of regurgitated watered down shit. If you're gonna just like ride Cormac McCarthy's coattails, you better be as good as the, yeah. And no country for old men (laughs) is already like a survival horror type thing you know it's these two guys hunting each other there's a lot of objects that are found and Mm -hmm. manipulated and interacted with a lot of sort of very sensory tracking yeah yeah yeah. cover intensity and the physicality of tracking in that movie is definitely warzone vibes uh i mean yeah it's something that you can see game developers have looked at and thought about like yeah. oh i want how do we how do we make how do we translate into this this into video game speed mm-hmm. and like i think a lot of it is like you see in the last of us like the really intense physicality of crafting in that game mm. and how much you have to think out think about resource management like that is definitely inspired by like how do we have having the character feel like they are being hunted by something as inescapable as Anton Sugar, yeah. essentially. Well, um, but that doesn't think about what, like, what is actually Cormac McCarthy trying to, set, to say? He's trying to say, like, a pretty conservative message, which is that the future is completely un- ununderstandable and the world has no place for uh, old-fashioned values anymore. And the road is just like, you know, the world falls apart and everyone immediately resorts to like gang rape and like cannibalism. Yeah, it's just like, I don't think that most people are. It's not the, you know, that's it's the purge, basically, literally like that. That kind of shit is just like the gentrified purge. Like, it's really not any different from what those movies end up saying. Yeah. 
You know, it is, um, I think, though, like, what is in Cormac McCarthy's benefit is that he's a great pro stylist. And, like, that's what you end up taking away mm-hmm. from this is that this imagery is so evocative. And he does, like, when he is trying to depict, like, an innately human darkness, he does tap into something that I think is really real. Like, when you, in um, The Blood Marinade, when he's depicting, like, the absolute horror of Westward expansion, uh, it's effective. But it's just he's so nihilistic, he ends up back in this right-winged place, yeah. you know? Um, and, like, it's possible to be cognizant of that. It's just that I think when it gets filtered through, like, a, Co- a Coen Brothers movie or, like, a, a popular but unremarkable adaptation of The Road uh, into video games, like, it gets even more removed mm-hmm. from the actual politics of Cormac McCarthy into this sort of politics blob. It's like a ditto at that point, you know? Yeah, but even like, I mean, we mentioned The Last of Us and like the second game in that series does like kind of carry like an implicit politics with like its Mm -hmm. story of like kind of like not like a two-state solution, but like two factions and it's just like, well, it's like violence leads to more violence. It's just yep. innate, and then you know you find out Neil Druckmann is a Zionist, and you're like, oh, okay, well, oh my God. sure. Yeah. <laughs> He's, yeah. So like he has said stuff in the press about he he um, lived in Israel when he was young. You know, I think he left before he was like ten. So he, but he does have memories of like the violence of uh, the way that Israel has vilely suppressed Palestinian people for decades. Um, He himself is a Zionist, and you can see that expressed in this game with the way that he Mm -hmm. depicts sort of like what he says is a quote cycle of violence, like a generational cycle of violence. Mm -hmm. But like he doesn't, the Zionism place where it comes from is like it's sort of this like woe is me, I can't, but this just has no solution and there's nothing to, to, to be done about this. Yeah, yeah. Which is a, such a defeatist and like sad and nihilistic view when like even in the text of the game, you know that you are going to unreasonable lengths to do something that like you really don't have to do. Well, yeah, and it's like, and then it, you know, it's motivated like, by emotion it, yeah. and it's like. It feels like something that. Not as a character trait that is not born out of actual like character choices, but something a writer wrote, you know? Yeah, it's got the bulletproof screenplay type. Yeah, it's all very like philosophy 101, like saw kind of yeah. like, you know, you've got the like baby on the train tracks and you got to pull the switch or whatever kind of fucking yeah. hypothetical got to hear both sides shit where like mm-hmm. everybody's complicit. And also it just like the way that's so much like, I mean, just discourse around like occupied places in general, but the way they're framed a lot of like popular media, um, you know, Palestine and like, I don't know, I think of like movies like the like Jack Ryan Patriot games about like the IRA or like anything about North Korea where it's just like, Oh, this culture of fear, like you can't be afraid. Like that leads to violence and everyone's just lashing out because they're scared. And it's like, well, of course these people are fucking scared because this is the place that they live and it's been taken over and invaded and occupied and they've been turned into aliens in their own home and like of fucking course, like, and, but just it's, they're always framed as these like 
debates these discursive like hypothetical scenarios that are then played out in genre fiction um yeah and like if you if you really want to think about what video games exist that do i think reach this like level of their approach to design and their approach to gameplay and their approach to storytelling the where i want to elevate them into like mainstream conversations about art uh they're very much they're very different kinds of games than uh than the last episodes i mean the first thing i would think about is near <laughs> um yeah near automata and near replicant i think are really video gamey games and like very much in conversation with long-held tropes about Japanese RPGs, especially in the way that they treat sort of like uh, secondary characters and quest systems and mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, and also like sort of the ultimate thing it's responding to is this idea of a completionist mindset for, for the types of people that need to see every single ending of a video game, which is like a particular kind of gamer. Yeah. Uh, one that plays Japanese RPGs in particular is sort of known to be a completionist. Um, but the the still, like even though it's in part of sort of a niche area, it ends up talking about and interacting with conversations about humanity and the nature of self and what it means to be in a community in ways that have had a lasting impact on me as a person mm-hmm. um they're good i mean they're also games where like a lady runs around in lingerie with a big old sword um where she like threatens to piss down your throat mm-hmm. so that there's that also but i think that those things end up enhancing i mean when you actually think about like what it means to be an auteur like those aspects are what the things are the markers of this being a like an as like an autorism like, like being like the product of an autorism yeah, yeah. Um, fetishes <laughs> fetishes exactly yes. it's quentin tarantino's like ladies feet mm-hmm. or but like even more simply it's like the way that like in brett like every single it's like the way that um, the breathless guy, I forget, Goodard. I'm very stoned. Goddard, why did I forget this? Why did I forget this? Why did I only start thinking about Jean-Claude Van Damme? <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> now that's elevated um, right there. <laughs> but yeah, but like in Goddard, where he's just like constantly making movies about how all women are horse, you know? Like, yeah. it's not something you can really ignore about the work also. Like, these are products of imperfect people. Yeah, some people would say Godard was the first white guy snapping in cinema long before Taxi oh Driver I'm just and thinking, the Joker. This just makes me think of an absurd film Twitter incident. I won't name any names, but this one, like, feminist film publication was, like, trying to dunk on Jean-Luc Godard. And the reason why, like, the reason they said he was bad is because... Um, there was like a couple years ago, a like French biopic about, I can't even remember the title, Redoubtable or something like that, that about like Godard. It's kind of a comedy. It's by the guy who did the artist, I think. Um, so, you know, that kind of like, like movie buff eye candy shit. And in the Mm. movie, like he stops going down on his girlfriend. Like he's like eating her out and then stops 
but it's like some like I don't know fictionalized movie and they're like yeah in this movie it shows him like not finishing going down on his on his girlfriend so he's not a, a, a male ally so he's he's canceled, canceled. the mm-hmm. DJ Khaled not- of the French New Wave Oh, that's how why you cancel him and not for the movie he made about Anna Karina after they broke up starring Brigitte Bardot basically dressed up as Anna Karina that ends with her dying in a car crash where the camera lingers over her gruesomely laid out like body. Yeah, or I mean, I think it's kind of fascinating as a film object, but Letter to Jane, which is just an hour long examination of a photograph of Jane Fonda is like it's kind of like Max Landis's Carly Rae Jepsen video vibes a little bit yeah 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 absolutely it's fine chilling absolutely that's a clickbait quote I'm gonna put in in the tweet or something yeah Jean-Luc Godard's letter to Jane is the Max Landis Carly Rae Jepsen video essay of the French New Wave I mean, I think it's like you're you're super not wrong. It's really making me pissed off. Yeah, <laughs> I said it. I'm I mad it. now. Um, one general tendency I want to talk about before we wrap up, though, with prestige stuff, is that I feel like generally there's kind of like a way in which we kind of talked about it earlier, but it's like media that comes with like reading instructions. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, that gets a little more complicated with video games because video games themselves are like. I mean, they, like, tell you how to solve the puzzles and stuff. like. They're, yeah. like... It's a set of rules, a set of systems and mechanics that interact with each other. Yeah. So you are learning something. You're learning how to interact with these systems. But there is, like, something about being guided, being told emotionally how to react to things. Oh, it's not just... I think the thing about prestige stuff, and particularly with games and, and also television, too, but even with a certain amount of, of new films as well it's not just emotion not not just manipulating you emotionally but this kind of like aesthetic like referential meta manipulation where it's like oh it's like this other thing you've seen therefore you should engage with it like that thing and take it seriously like that thing and i feel like there's a spectrum of just like general vibes of like something that is like ultimately a soap opera or trashy thriller or true crime being dressed up as like Tarkovsky or or whatever or, or you know being given all this like refin neon lighting or I don't know whatever mm-hmm. tendencies um, to like literally quoting referencing stuff like I'm thinking about like Kong Skull Island referencing Apocalypse mm-hmm. Now and yeah. now Jordan Vogue mm-hmm. Roberts is gonna do the Metal Gear Solid movie or so like, or like, like um, yeah. I don't know, like, you know, when they're like Captain America Winter Soldier is like 70s conspiracy par- paranoia thrillers. And it's not really. Um, yeah. I mean, I said that, too, at the time, like because I was a little dumbass mm-hmm. who had just graduated from college and was like refreshing. And it was refreshing to see anything that like looked like it had been influenced by a movie before. Yeah. You know, like, but it is so superficial. Yeah. Like, try to. Th- can you tell me? Can you tell me any political position that any character takes in that movie? No, yeah. you can't. Like, the only thing it does that I think is significant is, like, so, and it's something that no other Marvel movie does, is that it acknowledges that Samuel L. Jackson's Nick Fury is a black man and people are racist to black people. It's the only yeah. time that ever comes up. But there, that never comes up again. The most interesting thing that that movie does 
never it's like, comes up again because it's a oh, point hey, of view. Oh, hey, we've got Robert Redford. You 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 added uh, Three Days of the Condor to your Netflix queue once, right? You know, you know about this yep. thing. Um, yeah. Or like, I don't know, this kind of cycle of like, you know, when Logan came out, people were like, oh, this is a lot like The Last of Us, which it is. But James Mangold was also, and he's always doing this fucking shit where he's like, oh, I was like trying to make an Ozu movie or like the Wolverine. Here's a shot from Wongar Wise Chunking Express that influenced me. Um, mm-hmm. Or, But also, you know, literally like having like the scene with the extended <laughs> scene from Shane in it um, and just literally being like hey like this is a western yeah like here we're doing the critical analysis for you we're already telling you how to interpret this thing so you don't associate it with like the superhero genre or comic book adaptation or something that is like culturally maligned it's so funny because the best stuff about that movie I think are its interpretations of the comic book Mm -hmm. stuff like the stuff I like most is the relationship between, like, Wolverine and X-23 and this new generation of mutants and, like, that specific metaphor, which has nothing to do with the Western thing that it does. Yeah. And, like, the mo- the best stuff is, like, seeing Patrick Stewart as an older version of this character he created mm-hmm. and, like, made an yeah. icon. Some Twin Peaks um, season three vibes a little bit, honestly. Yeah, mm-hmm. like revisiting that stuff in a meaningful way made me hopeful for the idea of superhero movies being a genre. And like again, that's just another cat, like a check that these movies set up that they just never fucking yeah. cash because they're more interested in the aesthetics of you're gonna take this seriously now rather than actually meaningfully interacting with the things that they are saying. And I think that it's like you know the, the, this thing happens where. I, I, in theory, I like something like Logan or even something like Joker where it's like, oh, yeah, this is like an interpretation. This is a, this is like a side issue, you know, mm-hmm. which is it's like that comic books as a history of free interpretation, you know, basically. Sure. But just because of the demands of the industry, it's like, oh, Joker's successful. We got to keep this going. Like, it can't just be this standalone one-off thing which is the same thing with fucking every sort of prestige television show or prestige game series from true detective to the last of us where it's like we got to franchise it it it, it can't be one-off it has to be serialized and continuing so we we have to like keep inflicting trauma on these characters we have to keep making you consider the ethics of violence and putting shit on you and making you feel bad and like keep it up um, but yeah. also this is kind of a random thing, but I don't know, thinking about like Logan quoting Shane in, in some ways to me, I feel like I feel like I could rattle off a ton of movies over the past decade or mostly like half decade or so from like Baby Driver to John Wick that feel very object focused in a very video game like way, both in sort of like weapons and vehicles, but also in like media like movies where mm-hmm. characters are really into tapes or records like yeah even like Bo- the Bob Odenwick movie nobody which was a piece of shit yeah. um he was like really obsessed with records um and that feels very like video gamey where like just you know i don't know like having the characters like objects that you can interact with or like metal gear solid 5 where you pick up the t- the cassette tapes of 80s songs yeah and it's sort of like these aesthetic markers 
Yeah, Hotline Miami, yeah. Oh, which is very deliberately this like neon soaked Miami Vice thing. Yeah. But like down to the way that it's curated its soundtrack, which is like a very fun curated soundtrack. Like a lot of these things, like the aesthetics that they yeah. engage in are shit is shit I like. Yeah. It's just that I don't mistake that for depth. You know, mm-hmm. I like I liked the the Bob Odenkirk, like John Wick movie. But like that's because I signed up for a Bob Odenkirk John Wick yeah. movie, and I was completely satisfied with what I got. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're going there and you're looking for something more than that, I mean, I think like that's why John Wick works. John Wick's movies tell you right away these movies are about fucking crazy stunts and fucking out of control fight scenes. Yeah. Like it's just like they, they want you to be like like the thing you should be taking seriously here is like the elegance and craft and the way that we've strung together these fights yeah. and the the kinds of things that we're doing like the frick, the swords on horse like on motorcycles come on you know like they want you it's like the same kind of thing that people get hyphy for in the fast and furious franchise mm-hmm. it's just like a series of escalating yeah. car stuff but people are more like, willing to take like john wick seriously because it like references things yes 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 i'm like that that is the thing that's really irritating because when you when you Look at the fiction of the world. It doesn't make sense at all. Yeah. It doesn't make sense at all. Like, everyone in New York City essentially is an assassin or has the potential to be an assassin. <laughs> What's going on? Well, y'all live there. Y'all could tell me. Watching John Wick 2, I just remember going to the theater and seeing that before everybody had been, like, in the reviews, like, oh, this is, wow, this is, like, a Buster Keaton movie. It's, like all these stunts and stuff and then the movie starts and there's literally for like a second like a buster keaton movie projected on a wall and i'm just like oh like y'all guys like didn't have you didn't have that idea like it was just like (laughs) given to you by the text of the movie itself yeah yeah you are correct and it gave you the critical framework yeah and yeah it also just like reminds me of a bunch of i mean we talked about kind of like action games and kind of like more traditional really big budget games that kind of integrate these like emotions and like put them on the face and say this game's about Mm -hmm. you know violence or this game's about fatherhood or whatever um but there's another strain of games that kind of do a similar thing which is kind of like this smaller kind of form of like indie puzzle games that like use puzzles to express like or just like make you meditate on this like problems that people are facing. Like mm-hmm. one is like braid, but oh other God. ones like, you yeah. know, super liminal, unfinished swan, what remains of Edith Finch, like I don't know, these type of like puzzle games where it's like you just like meditate on somebody's internality while you do puzzles that like sometimes engage with that stuff, but most of the time it's like you're listening to a podcast and then you're doing a puzzle at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, essentially Jonathan Blow um, will make you do a complex and, like, actually pretty intellectually engaging puzzle while you listen to a podcast of his reactionary politics. Yeah. (laughs) Or, like, (laughs) the witness including that Tarkovsky clip in it if we're just talking about, like, you know, including stuff to, like, make people interpret it away. Yeah, it is, like, that is an artistic technique, right? That's collage. Mm -hmm. It's just, like... The more successful collage is, the more specific it is. And it feels like this is just kind of seeing, putting two things together and saying this are the same. Mm-hmm. These two things are the same without actually doing the work of making them compellingly the same. I mean, I can't, you know, believe we haven't, uh, we hadn't mentioned Death Stranding. So I feel like Kojima's yeah. 
taste and tweets about movies really inform the prestige canon. But also that movie, yep. that, uh, that oh God, that, mo- mm. that movie, oh, that movie, that film, really that game yet. has a few filmmakers who appear in it who are very, I think, telling of this. Um, I mean, Raff, Nicholas Winding Refn, um, who is both, has a sort of arty European sheen and a kind of some kind of vibe of prestige, but is also so trashy and depraved and violent. And yeah, like he's like, I think a weird outlier and that everyone remembers drive because of the soundtrack, which weirdly evokes hotline Miami also. And I think share some artists with hotline Miami. Mm, the imagery um, also kind of evokes it. Synth way. Yeah, yeah. The imagery evokes it too. Yes. And I mean, the, character of the driver himself is really video gamey he and like the the it's very much structured in this like a series of levels and that that escalate in there mm-hmm. and how hard they are and also like the level of violence but the thing about that movie ultimately is about isn't like a judgment of the level of violence but a presentation and meditation on it and like that's something that becomes more clear the more you watch Refn's work which is really all just about men who do violent things and not in a judgmental way but like what are those people like mm-hmm. um and then also women who do violent things and what are those people like mm-hmm. uh that's that's makes him a, a, a different it's not moralizing in the way that i associate with prestige media mm-hmm. um and definitely not moralizing in the way that kojima is kojima is interested in men and women who do violent things but he has very different yeah. opinions about women who do violent things than men who do violent things yeah and i think that refin is like i mean a little bit more like paul verhoven as this like european yeah. outsider a lot of times obsessed with unseemly americana um, and and Del yeah. Toro, Guillermo Del Toro, also appearing in that game, is somebody who similarly went from like European art house to way more Hollywood and you know Oscar winning than Refn would or probably will ever be. Um, mm-hmm. But I, similarly, as somebody who's like, oh, he's this genre visionary. He carries around a sketchbook and draws monsters, um, the lovable nerd. But mm-hmm. also, is like. His, his, I mean, I think there's a lot of fascinating imagery in his movies, but one of the failings of them is that they are just like subtext to the point of like it's text. Like there's really just like one way to interpret it of like this is about, oh, like fascism in, in under Franco and, um, you know, the Red Scare and homophobia and just like, hey, like these letter graphed themes like capital T um, and genre movies horror movies monster movies every kind of thing has had a lot of intentional or not commentary over the ages Mm -hmm. um but now it's just like with someone like him he's he's made it like oscar acceptable um and made you know a certain kind of film fit into a box of like what a serious movie is supposed to be um, mm-hmm. And I think that uh, I don't know with with somebody like Kojima who's who really is taking liberally from movies and other media a lot. There's a similar sort of thing where it's just like a, a, it's it's really like not that different in a lot of ways from what it's trying to emulate or take from. It's just like 
much more obvious whatever the meaning is mm-hmm. yeah um kojima has the subtlety of a fucking brick <laughs> you know yeah yeah he's He's got a big, smooth brain, and he's not ashamed of that. And, like, there's something to respect about that. He's very direct. He loves what he loves. Yeah. And he's going to be extremely direct with you. Sometimes it really, really works. Like, uh, PT, I think, is, like, a perfect piece of art. Mm -hmm. You know? It is such a shame that that game functionally doesn't exist anymore. Um, But it is literally, as a discrete art object, it is itself a perfect piece of design. And, like, the Fox engine that he was working on, like, holy shit, like, that is an incredible feat of engineering. That game looks incredible. Yeah. Um, but then you get shit where he's, like, really let to go without an editor, and you get Metal Gear Solid Five, which is, like, a super weird, incredibly misogynistic mess. Yeah, endless. is endless and it is endless yeah. it has a thousand subplots and like was apparently going to have an even longer subplot about child soldiers and like ultimately is a message about pacifism and like nuclear disarmament but it takes like 600 years to get there and it's also about like language and like yeah. the violence of language or whatever or it thinks it's about that kind of thing yeah you know i mean it's also about a woman in a bikini writhing around in a pool of water because she breathes through her skin, obviously. Yeah. And you're sexist if you think it's because she's got a, a nice titties and a little booty. But, <laughs> like, what did he say about journalists who said that the design of uh, Quiet oh, was geez. sexist? He's, it's like a seven-year-old tweet. Uh, yeah, it was like, he was like, shame, you will all see and feel shame whenever you discover you the regret. true reason. <laughs> you will regret your words and deeds. Oh, that was, I just yeah. think about... <laughs> This classic Happy Pride Month tweet of uh, where he's like, I may be wearing a rainbow shirt, but I am not gay or whatever. Yeah, I mean, his, you know, his gameography is a bit of just a really long, like multiple decades long, like no homo. No homo snake. For the most part. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the more he tries to tell the fandom for Metal Gear that Snake and Otakon are not in a relationship, the less convinced they are. Yeah, they're like, he really, really bothers you a lot. You huh? know what? I just yeah. am realizing. <laughs> it bothers you so much you gave them a daughter, but okay. <laughs> they need, fuck Oscar Isaac, Kenny Omega needs to play Snake yes. Yes. In, the, in the Metal yes. Gear yes. Solid movie. <laughs> These games, like, when you look through what he's trying to do, and I think that this is the level through which I appreciate, like, the work of Breffin and the work of Guillermo del Toro, they're camp, and, like, Mm -hmm. that's what makes them so good at the end of the day. It's, like, at the same time as there's, like, Snake is a serious, like, a military operative, he wears a cat suit that goes straight up his ass crack. So you see each individual butt cheek move around Mm -hmm. as he's, like, grinding on the ground crawling everywhere you know like it's a campy game those are campy games they have the beauty they have the beauty and the beast squad which are all like beautiful women who were giving ironic punishments based on like the seven deadly sins or whatever yeah fairy tales and they're all like they're all wearing like rubber fetish suits yep drag queen shit yeah yeah it's much more (laughs) much more sucker punch than uh kong skull island i think yeah it's like has a lot more in common with camp, like especially like queer camp stuff. 
and I don't know how he, I don't, I feel like it is on purpose, but I feel like he doesn't understand that that is the stuff that people remember and like about him. You know, I don't care for when he tries to impart deliberate messages about like, oh, like the nature of beauty. Like he does that a lot with female characters mm-hmm. where he has in Just Stranding, that character who wears a like rubber fetish suit again, um, because underneath it she was uh, so made to run out in this time a rain that ages her body. Yeah. So her face is like her actual age and is beautiful, but her body is the body of an old woman. Oh no! Yeah. Or the character <laughs> that is literally like named Mama because she has a little ghost baby that she that will never grow up and so she has to always tend to yeah and the, her ringtone is like when she calls you is literally like a little lullaby and it's just like fuck off dude <laughs> fuck you well yeah well that whole thing is like also death stranding is like with it's this man who has to like carry a baby around which is yet another form of a dad game which is just like yep. heavy yep. rain it's just like like not queering fatherhood but it's just like shut the fuck up <laughs> well because that makes it sound like it's like a like a positive thing or something like that yeah but it's like these Gay like dads. yeah well it's just like game developers getting older and they're just like this fatherhood shit yeah is crazy. i mean it's like how you know m night Shyamalan had kids and he was like i feel a little bit weird making scary movies so i'm gonna make the last airbender and after earth and which after earth especially is like about fatherhood and about being a parent um and and then his kids got older and he was like okay i can like make scary movies again yeah well children of men is that same way where it's like a man having to care for for whatever a child future of humanity i saw a tweet from like screen slate or something when resident evil village came out being like i'm tired of being playing a dad carrying a baby damn well i mean yeah it's you can definitely see a point in video games where people like started having children and then started making games about having children and i think the both the like the one version of this i tolerate and the absolute nadir of it though is the god of war remake because I mean, it's funny when you think about it, right? Because God of War is this game that was, like, hyper-violent and sexist in a really, like, violent, particularly violent way. Yeah. Like, there is a, an achievement you got in one of the games where if you used a woman's, like, if you killed a woman and used her body to prop a door open, you would get an achievement called Bros Before Hoes. Yeah, and also um, each of those those first three had, like, a sex rhythm minigame, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like literally, like you, the player would you a uh, 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 quick time event mini game to fuck a pretty lady, and yeah, so they they recreate it as this deep narrative about the you know uh, a man and his dead wife mm-hmm. and their son that he now has to take care of. Yeah, and the thing is, it like at the very least is one of this game like acknowledges that. Working a really hard job where you have to spend a long time away from your son and then coming back into his life and trying to forge a connection with him, you're going to have to deal with him fucking resenting you a lot. (laughs) And you, as a player, do, like, the character is distinct from the player in that way, where you're, like, watching the the character make choices that are bad. 
and like the game is framing them as bad and it knows that like it's it's actually trying to tell you something a little bit more subtle than other dad games which like but like the thing is it's also just like it is just like literally just is a game about oh these guys that used to make this really misogynistic game series had children and now they feel bad about it and now i have to deal with their guilt yeah (laughs) now i have to i mean it's a form of emotional labor if you think about it Mm -hmm. a 30 hour (laughs) monotonous shit well, the, yeah, Sony Santa Monica should pay me mm-hmm. at the end the, of the day. The single take God of War also like brings to mind. Uh, oh God, I forgot the single take. In- Inuritu, who is a definitive prestige filmmaker. I mean, the composer for uh, Babel did the music for The Last of Us, and Inuritu had that fucking stupid like empathy VR um, <laughs> undocumented immigrant border crossing game or whatever or or experience Mm. movie yeah whatever it was like in museum settings and stuff like that yeah um and i just feel like you know something like the revenant where it's like oh you know dicaprio got frostbite it's so intense it's so punishing it's so real is is just kind of like a sort of de facto guideline for a lot of these creators i guess where it's like the more suffering and punishment and trauma that yeah. happens the more serious and real and authentic it is and i don't know it just like um we talked about this a few episodes ago on our mind virus slash empty man slash other movies episode but the empty man just stood out to me because it felt a little bit about like we create these characters and then just make them suffer and like why do we do that and, and that's ultimately, I think, what the, a lot of these media sort of make you feel because they're so, like, hollow experience, like, as an experience, and because they don't feel very genuine, it just really makes you realize, like, how insincere the kind of suffering and all of this, just, like, all of this horrible shit that happens to these characters that happens in this world, all of it just feels like so unearned and really makes you have that kind of like uncanny valley feeling of like wait like why do we have to make people up and then just make them go through horrible things Mm -hmm. yeah making up a guy to make them suffer yeah and yeah Yeah. and it's like why ultimately (sighs) you just kind of get to a point where it's like instead of making me like question violence why don't we just like not have it yeah yeah it really is like the pinnacle of that kind of like oh don't you feel bad for doing this bad thing game was spec ops the line and like it kind of did work because it was kind of deliberately positioned and advertised as just another third person military shooter but it turned into something else Mm -hmm. but it's also when you look at it now and you play it now knowing what it is it's a critique of those games like it really is like you did this bad thing don't you feel bad for doing this bad thing we made you do i'm thinking specifically of the white phosphorus scene which must have been shocking at the time because you like you there were a lot of those kind of top-down like drone strike scenes yeah, like, that was sort of new to the mod to the modern military shooter at that mm-hmm. time like call of duty and 4 they were, is the really iconic one yeah to reframe it does seem shocking but like they don't give you a choice 
about whether or not you do that. Yeah. You are you are compelled to do that. And they don't tell you until afterward that you're actually bombing civilian targets. And it is like an incredibly manipulative moment. And it's just like, instead of taking like, okay, maybe we shouldn't make these kind of fucking weirdo jingoistic games we should stop doing that. Instead of taking that from Spec Ops the line, what people, what developers took forward was the manipulative aspect of that moment of the game. Mm-hmm. And then they've mistaken that for depth. Yeah, totally. And like a lot of people have kind of criticized that moment for its manipulation as we've kind of talked about in other things as well. But also, I mean, the game, like you keep going and it's pretty unrelenting and a lot of the things you have to do and don't have much choice in. But it does also present the choice of, well, you could just like stop playing the game it like tells you to yeah it's upfront about that yeah and like that i think also differentiates it from other games that would try to pull some of these similar techniques Mm. i was trying to think i was going to say something before we talked about spec ops and i can't even remember it sucks because it's like it's like a cool if you like if this is like uh your first introduction to the idea of being anti-war you could do a lot worse, right, than Spec Ops the line. Mm-hmm. But I just feel like it's similar to, like, Watchmen or mm-hmm. something. What the culture took from it was not actually the things that are most worthwhile about that game. I mean, it's like that classic Francois Truffaut adage of, like, no, war mo- no like, anti-war movie can really be an anti-war movie. Like, any war movie ends up glorifying war in some way um, just by, like, depicting it, uh, which is is pretty true. Like, and I mean, obviously, you know, I think that, like, there are a lot of instances of, of putting, I don't know, putting aside, like, radical cinema because I think that, like, there are a lot of necessary instances of violence and direct action and stuff. But in terms of, like, popular mm-hmm. cinema, at least, like, anything that's, like, trying to reflect... And, and make a statement usually just ends up like sort of glorifying a, a kind of struggle or sacrifice or heroic ideal. Um, even if it's like war is bad, it's still like soldiers are good usually or something or army is good or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, even stalker. And I know they're depicted like depicting it in an ironic way in some way, but like they have that scene in the woods where it shows all the Soviet soldiers coming together, playing that Soviet marching song about defeating fascism. Mm-hmm. And like at the end of the day, they were fighting Nazis, even though the movie goes to great lengths just to like sort of ask you whether the nobility of that is worth the cost, like in human life. Mm-hmm. Um, but like there, there's the way that people talk about soccer these days. Not soccer. This is uh, Come and See. I mix up those two movies again because I'm high. But those are but both like such like oh you gotta see like well one perfect shot movies yeah i mean stalker the one perfect shot is annoying because movies are a visual medium like it's time-based medium it's about something that's fucking moving you know that pisses me off because like this most beautiful stuff about stalker is the stuff that happens over time like the last shot of that movie like that is a very slow scene and a really simple effect and one that takes a lot of time and there's not a lot of things moving but it isn't as meaningful as a still image and it pisses me off to see screenshots of this the guys sitting in the dunes because the beautiful thing about that scene is that there's an entire rainstorm that comes in and out and you get to see them just become drenched and there's something so hypnotic about the rain and the sound of it and 
the the way that the sunlight comes back in the end that uh, isn't present in the still image. Mm-hmm. I feel like like a lot of some of this, some of prestige is what the what the things are, and a lot, some of prestige is like the culture of cinema that has grown up around Definitely. it. Definitely, and yeah, it's um definitely something that also exists in video games it's like it's fandom stuff you know it's like it is the defensive nature of a nerd to say that the thing that they like is good actually yeah yeah bringing it all back to dark souls yes but sometimes the thing that you like is good actually because it's goofy ass and not because it's it's like meaningful and deep sometimes the thing that you like is good because it like makes you cry, but also there is a lady running around in her underwear with a big sword talking about how she's gonna fuck your skull. You know? Like sometimes you have to embrace the fact that you are making a pulp thing in a pulp medium. Yeah. And like that's what makes it that is the thing that makes it good. That's what makes wrestling good. Exactly. That's what makes comic books good, you know? Mm-hmm. Those are the things that are endemic to these pieces of ways of telling stories that make them good is like the cultural history that they're tapped into and like sometimes that cultural history is is pulpy and that's fine that's the spectrum prestige pulp yeah, yeah. i like my <laughs> Which I like, side will you take i like my oj with the pulp personally i don't need it refined or strained Mm-mm. that feels like Damn. a good note i think to wrap up the conversation on we did have an email question this week do we want to do that yeah or do we let's do okay. it a very first in Hotbox history, a listener email. This should be played at high volume, preferably in a residential area. This one comes in from a listener named Tully, who... Tully, it's like Sully. I can imagine the poster for Sully, but it says Tully. That's a free profile picture for you there, friend. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) Tully says, hey guys, first off, love the show despite knowing next to nothing about movies. In a strange way, it's arguably more fun to listen to you talk about movies I've never heard of and picture them in my head. Anyway, here's my question. In regard to the most recent episode about Monster Hunter, I'm curious what your opinion is on video game movies as a whole. The genre is a pretty bad rap for producing some really terrible films, or so I've heard, but I was surprised to hear you talking about Monster Hunter in a positive way. How do you feel about video game movies overall? Are they truly as bad as everyone says, or are some of them kind of good? Much love, Tully. Thank mm. you, Tully. Yeah, thank you for the email. Um, gosh, I mean, we... so. We have an episode that's very much about video game movies, our Sonic episode. Sonic the Hedgehog, mm-hmm. Gotta Go Fast. Yeah. Um, but I, we didn't actually like 
go like list all the video game movies or something that exists on that episode or really like be like, this one is good. This one is bad. Um, so I'm trying to think a little bit of like what. Well, I feel like people often, there's like different waves of video game movies. Like obviously there's like the Super Mario Brothers movie. Um, there's like, you know, movies about like arcade games and stuff like that. Like, uh, yeah. what, like the last Starfighter and like, uh, arcade the by Wolf- Albert PM. Yeah. Arcade or like, or even, um, the, the wizard. The oh Nintendo yeah. Movie. Yeah. Yeah. Which is about arcade culture. Yeah. In a way that, but no, arcade culture that didn't really exist, but that's the know. power glove movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. With Jenny Lewis. And it was like kind of a commercial for like Mario brothers three. It was like the most extensive footage people had seen of that game up to that time yeah. was in that movie. Um, and then there's also things like Tron, which is kind of like about a fake video game, but then that becomes like an arcade game. That's very successful. Um, and then, I mean, later on, there's like, I mean, you know, Street Fighter had, had its movie. Mortal Kombat has its movies. Uh, and then I guess what people talk about, Uwe Boll. Yeah. And I mean, we talked about Resident Evil movies on the show. And I mean, I think those are like my favorites. Um, well, they're just all about how much that guy wants to have sex with his oh, wife. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's That's beautiful. That's the entire yeah, I love Cinema that. Cinema's yeah, that wife guy. Aside from connection. Rob Zombie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, those are the two. So, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that I have, like, a definitive, like, they're good or they're bad. It kind of varies by each one, yeah. but... Yeah. It, there's been new approaches to making video game movies over the years, I think is what I would say. Yeah. And there are some that are successful and some that are less successful. Yeah. Less successful, Assassin's Creed with Mark... Like, with the Fassbender. Yeah. Uh, that was not... And that was a very much in the vein of a prestige movie. Like yeah. they 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 gussied it up, um, and they had Marion Cotillard, and they tried to tell like a narrative about freedom of choice or whatever. Yeah. Um, stuff and about realizing the really, truth. Yeah, but like the stuff that's cool about Assassin's Creed or that you get to go back in time, you know, yeah. and see like hyper accurate representations of history. Um, that's the stuff that everyone plays Assassin's Creed for. That and, like, doing assassinations, because <laughs> that's the name of the game. Yeah. Um, so it was, like, like, a really weird movie. Yeah. And, like, it was it was weird. <laughs> it was, like, received poorly enough that they, like, canceled, like, the Splinter Cell movie they'd been teasing since, like, the first game came out. Oh, my God. I'm like, Splinter Cell, that's Tom Clancy stuff. Like, obviously, that's adaptable into a movie. Like, that's the kind of thing that bothers me, right? Yeah. It's like the things that get adapted get adapted in weird ways because the stories that they're telling are not really structured to be Mm -hmm. told in a cinematic way. Like, it's really weird to have a movie that's structured in sort of, like, discrete little levels. That, That doesn't really feel natural. But there are movies that are not based on video games that tell stories in ways that are video game y that still, I think, are good. Like, here, think about a movie that, you know, sections its narrative up into discrete levels. Like, think about uh, the Dread movie that is a, it really does have them go floor by floor mm-hmm. yeah. through a massive um, apartment building in a way that feels very gamey. Mm-hmm. And then they beat a boss at the end. Yeah, or like um, Snowpiercer is another one people yes, at the time were yes. like, this is like Bioshock. Yeah, you know, people brought that up right away. Funnily enough, because they're like, oh, it's also, they're both games with social commentary. But Ken Levine and, like, Snowpiercer, those are, those are, have very different political motivations, I would yeah, say. Totally, <laughs> yeah, totally. Also, on the note of Bioshock, um, 
Corver Binsky had been trying to, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, like the definitive games as art game, you know, that's a big mm-hmm. one. Um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, Gore Verbinski had been trying to adapt that for years. And I think a lot of those kind of images and ideas ended up filtered into a cure for wellness, which is not like a great movie, but it's pretty weird and distinctive, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's maybe some other instances like that of just, I don't know, not a lot of things are immediately coming to mind, but just things very transparently influenced by games or... Mm-hmm maybe like working out those like i don't know like i guess like district nine or something like that yeah. you know which like neil blomkamp was like so you know working on halo for a long time um yeah and i think some of those ideas and images ended up in his other movies and um I like the, or just you know, you mentioned the Street Fighter movie, Seth. You know, I like that one. It's got it's got yeah. the cool costumes. It's got Kylie Minogue with a rocket launcher. Yeah, like I like a Mortal Kombat mm-hmm. movie because, like, number one, it is a camp classic with a classic song that like really brings me back to going to to the Goth Club Neo in Chicago. Like, it is a four to the floor heat shaker, mm-hmm. um, and. That is something that does reflect sort of the actual culture that Mortal Kombat is from in a way that feels more genuine. I feel like the Mortal Kombat, the new one, got there. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like it it achieved some of the things that the first one did, but that first movie, um, that's like for me, like it's not very good and it's like kind of racist, but it's like for me, that's what I would want out of a video game movie, something that feels like video yeah. gamey. No, I think Mortal Kombat Annihilation, I watched recently, the second one, which is not good necessarily, but has its pleasures just because it's like every character is like a video game character that just have like very distinctive costumes and like you have this like, I don't fucking know Mortal Kombat character names, but you have like the ex-football player who's like, who's playing this like the guy with like the big robot arm um and which was uh which is speaking of AEW earlier the wrestler brian cage the machine brian cage who's just this insane ripped massive dude he comes out with this like cyborg uh outfit that's like very clearly like mortal Kombat meets kate uh what's his name cable from the x-men um mashed together um Mm -hmm. But, which honestly, that's my favorite video game movie is the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega at, I can't fucking remember. I've watched too many pay-per-views in a row. I can't remember names anymore. But some AEW 2019 show, they did a like Street Fighter themed entrance and costumes and stuff. Um, That's my favorite video game movie. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, my, I mean, uh, I'm just thinking about this because my boyfriend also just bought and is probably still playing the Scott Pilgrim movie. But like, yeah, that's like a, that's not based that's based on a comic book that is like directly influenced by video games. Like that that mm-hmm. movie is an, a better an expression of the kinds of the emotional journey that a game takes you on that feels very true to life. But it isn't directly about a video game. It's about how video games teach you things. And then like, but also like um. I mean, my favorite version of this is Edge of Tomorrow, which is just yeah. about Tom Cruise eating shit over and over and over, yeah. going through the same level over and over and over until he gets it right and has it perfectly memorized and knows it every way in and out. 
and then using those skills and using them in a challenge with a lot more risk, which is just like the scenario that most video games put you in emotionally mm-hmm. when you're like, playing And them. it's like the reward structure of those games too, or the feedback loop. Yeah. yeah. And it's like they managed to do it in a way that they think is like a very fun movie, a very good little action movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not super deep. Um, Emily Blunt is, I don't know, she's way better than that movie deserves frankly, but uh, the between and it's like they really delight in showing you all the different ways that um, Tom Cruise is going to die. Like it becomes a running joke that Emily Blunt's just going to shoot him in the head when he fucks up. Like he trains, he's training, there's a training montage where he just keeps like breaking various parts of his body, like breaking his legs. Mm-hmm. And she's like, okay, well I got to reset the day so I'm going to shoot you in the head now. And he's like, no, 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 I can still make it. And then just <laughs> restarts. Mm-hmm. Um, like it, it leans into the goofiness yeah, of this yeah. premise. I, yeah. um, it's, <coughs> sorry, uh, dry mouth, stoner problems. Uh, <laughs> Just stoner it's, uh, I talked about it on a few episodes ago. I can't remember exactly which episode, but the need for speed movie is actually pretty good. Um, it's just got a lot of, it's directed by Scott Waugh, who's like a long time Hollywood stunt man. And it's got a lot of just great, like race sequences and set pieces that are very like tactile and kind of nitty gritty and mechanical and material and just not really like anything. I don't know. Most car chases and sequences feel very previs and 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 rendered and and cgi bound and those feel very real and it's maybe a little bit too long but i think that's also a great one um underrated imo yeah i don't know it's a tough top it's a tough genre because it's like a genre based on like adaptation i also i've never seen it material i've never seen it but other people defend it silent hill I like the Silent I Hill I feel movie. like when it I is, see it, I will yeah. like it. I just have it. I just know. I think it is, you have to treat it like the thing, like you have to treat it just as, like, as discreet from the games, but I think it is very good at evoking the things that people like about those games. You know, people really wanted to see like a literal translation of those games, but actually go ahead because this is, I think, maybe what, what I want to wrap things oh, yeah, up on. No, well, so the second Silent Hill movie, Silent Hill Revelation 3D, directed by a trans woman uh mj bassett who also directed solomon kane and this movie um last year with megan fox called like what was it called rogue where megan fox is like a hunter like she's hunting a tiger or something and she started as like a wildlife photographer um mm-hmm. oh, so that's wild. somebody who i've been kind of like that that could be a hot box episode like that's a vulgar auteur yeah. right there um yeah. but uh, so i've been like i would defend those movies sight unseen that's just something i would go to bat for both of those yeah yeah the thing i was just gonna say um i completely forgot oh no so you know what Damn. silent hill mysteries. something about silent hill yeah movies um, prestige movies, adaptation prestigious. It's no. like evoking what people liked about the games, but not being literal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I... 
I feel like it was along those lines, but you know what? All thoughts are ephemeral. It's not that important. Yeah. Let's just leave that to be a mystery. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember at all. <laughs> I was too engaged with what Nadine was saying. I was just so intelligent. We'll, we'll leave it silent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's so stupid. Oh, God. Um, I love podcasting, baby. Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah, accidentally recording for two and a half hours. You know what? It's good. It's just that we were no, having a you know, I've been listening. So I, as as we've talked about many times, we both don't really listen to that many podcasts. Or, or you know, at least I don't very. I, ha- I have had podcasts here and there, and then I trail off with everything. But I started listening to this wrestling podcast, The Lapsed fan podcast where every episode is like a deep dive into a different old pay-per-view and pretty much most of their episodes are like four hours minimum and a lot of them they do have like two parters that are both like three to five hours long about one show Um, so i'm kind of like okay you know now i'm tipping my toes around the podcast world a little bit more and there's a lot of long fucking podcasts out there that people actually listen to and it's so true. I don't Quite feel shame too bad for many about people. running long myself. Yeah. yeah. As they say on Waypoint Radio, five star runtime, five star podcast. Mm-hmm. Yep. We are Damn. Good. Well, Thanks. yeah, as we wrap we up, Gita, it. is there anything you want to promote? Anything you want to plug? Oh, yeah. I got to say, um, as I'm a part of Waypoint, got to give a shout out to Waypoint Plus, the new subscription service that we just started we have blown through our subscriber goals, which has been incredible. Like, thank you for all the support, everyone. But if you're interested in bonus pods and supporting our ability to do streams and stuff like that, then I think you go to waypoint.zone slash plus or slash join. One of those two. Yeah. And you can sign up $5 a month. It's a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. One kind of expensive New York coffee a month, you know. And listen, treat yourself. Yeah. It's more lasting than a cup of coffee. Definitely worth checking out. I've been a uh, Waypoint reader and consumer for on and off for for years, and the content's always worth it. Yeah, Rob, Patrick, and Austin are great friends of mine and, like, really wonderful people, and they've wanted to be able to have more live streams and video content and more podcasts Mm -hmm. for a really long time. So, you know, doing this as a membership program allows people to, to help us get the resources to do more stuff, and... I know it's something that people have also asked for, the ability to support us directly. So if you want to help us make sure that we can keep doing live streams and podcasts, this is a great way to help support us. So um, uh, it's going to be super fun. And like I, I can't wait uh, as we're in like a soft launch period. But yeah. like I can't wait as like things get more sort of like organized and like we're like sort of... Uh, like firmed up there's going to be a lot of cool and exciting things we're going to start doing yeah the brain just starts racing about gita content yeah that can be supported i i there will be gita content and i'm very excited about it so uh please uh sign up if you want to get some uh be able to support my ability to do to some live streams do some podcasting i would love that definitely um but yeah that's that's what's new in my life. Also, I just wrote about the new Sims expansion, which is the one where you basically are in an HGTV show, and I I think it's it's really cool. It's really cool. I think if you are willing to dip your toe into the Sims ecosystem, it's kind of worth yeah. trying out 
at least a little bit. Wait, maybe wait. I'm. They always have a big sale, at least once a year. Yeah. So if you don't want to spend a whole bunch of money on a base game and at least one expansion that I think is kind of essential for the game, um, well, I understand. It's a lot of expansions that are out now, but it's like so literally like trading spaces. In mm-hmm. that, like the first time I did a renovation, <laughs> the family got so mad at me. And, like, I had to, like, run away from the house. Oh like, they kept coming over to do angry social interactions. Oh I thought God. I was my character was going to get into a fight with, like, the dad of that family. Mm-hmm. It's, like, very, very dramatic. And it adds, like, a lot of depth to the interactions between other Sims. So, uh, The Sims is, like, to me, one of my favorite video game series. So, I, I, I would love it if you read that article. <laughs> oh, yeah. Definitely go check it out. We'll have a link for it, you know, in the show notes. That classic podcast move <laughs> uh where can people find you on twitter oh you can find me at xoxo gossip gita there you go Classic. nadine what about you um i'm as always at trillmore girls what about you yeah Seth? i'm at asap sunscreen i don't have anything to plug but you just did write at pitchfork about wrestling music oh yeah fun little piece about the history of crossover between pop music and pro wrestling two great tastes that taste great together um yeah a lot of fun little anecdotes and clips hyperlinked to in that article um and also a lot of stuff that i didn't get to or stuff that i found out about later or was informed by fans that i wasn't really aware of so i'm thinking about maybe doing a part at least some uh i don't know blogging myself maybe doing a little bit of a part two but yeah check that out um but yeah we are on twitter hotbox of cinema same on instagram a little bit of merch hotbox the cinema dot big com, and the email hotbox the cinema at gmail.com send us yeah, mail any, some fan questions yeah please be like tully follow tully's example and mm-hmm. message us. I mean, you can DM us personally. Oh my God, there was another little piece of mail that kind of forgotten. It wasn't exactly a, p- a piece of official mail, but a message communicated to me about our last episode about Zack Snyder. Oh yeah. Good friend of the podcast, Ethan, rewatched Man of Steel and he said that General Zod looks like a Roman coin, um, which I had never really thought about before, but he's got the fucking like triangle, like spiky bangs, mm-hmm. which is very Roman coin vibes and just feels very yeah. fitting with Snyder's mythological, historical preoccupations. So I just wanted to give that little shout out. Thank you, Ethan. Also longtime listener, first yeah. time messenger. Definitely. Well, with that. Shout out to Ethan. Yeah. With that massive shout out to Ethan. Uh, I guess that's the end of the episode. Yeah, until next time, keep on token.
make it better. Just one kiss and we will be alright. Just one kiss will make it better. Just one kiss and we'll be fine.
it out, boy.